This episode of the Out of Bounds Podcast is brought to you by Fisher Skis. Um, this is the Out of Bounds Podcast. My name is Adam Jabber, and we have a great episode for you today. Um, actually, technically, we have two great episodes for you today. And for the next few weeks, for the for the next however long, we will have uh, multiple guests on at a time. Um, not together, necessarily, but there will be like two interviews in a row. Um, maybe more, but that way it's one, it's elongated, you can kind of listen while you're doing other stuff, while you're driving, you won't have to worry about switching the episode. And honestly, there's just too many people out there that I want to talk to and that want to talk to us. And um, I think that it works out really well. This week, uh, we have the combination of Heather Hansman, who is a phenomenal author. Um, She has written a book called Downriver, um, which is amazing. But why she's here on the show today is to talk about Powder Days and everything kind of leading into it. Powder Days is her new book. I, it's such a good read. I'm so excited for people to actually get this thing in their hands. Uh, I'm so excited for you guys to hear the conversation that we had. Um, Heather's great. I, I like, sometimes you leave interviews and you're like, this is the, this was the best. This is actually like why I do this. And, uh, and my conversation with Heather was just that. Uh, it was a ton of fun. I really enjoyed it. And I appreciate Heather taking the time to chat with me. Um, so obviously I'll have it in the show notes where you can go buy it. Um, we also have Brody Levin on the show. Brody Levin is, uh, a recently minted Fisher athlete. Um, we kind of talk about Brody's business savvy, which I think is one of his key attributes, uh, his change from being a park skier to being like this full on, I don't ski lifts hardly ever guy, um, and kind of everything in between. So, uh, that will bat, um, that'll be right up after Heather's interview. So, uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, and we've got a new sponsor for this week. Um, <clears throat> we have partnered up pretty much across the board on all shows with a company called OnX. Uh, if you're familiar with OnX already, great. You know it's a great product. It's amazing. Basically, what OnX is, is a mapping system or a GPS system for backcountry, specifically designed for being in the backcountry and skiing. Um, there are so many different features on this thing, and I'm so, like so amped up to talk to you guys about, um, and to have these guys as a sponsor for us. Like it's a product that I'm like, I've been using for the last two weeks as we've kind of been in conversations with them and the, how easy they make it to find lines, to understand slope angles, to see where you can actually go skiing, to see like previous range. Like there is just so many things that you can do with Onyx backcountry. Um, so if you want to become a member of Onyx, you can use promo code out of bounds when you go and check out. Um, I'll probably end up including a link for that as well. Uh, promo code out of bounds will save you 20% off on your purchase or your subscription. Um, and I think it's a great deal. I think it's the shit. And you should support companies that support us, like Onyx. Um, not only, by the way, are they going to give you 20% off by using our promo code, they're going to donate $10 to an avalanche center of your choosing if you sign up in the month of November. November's the big push. Like I said, everybody's got stuff going on in November. This is what, this is like when everybody kind of like 
starts marketing everything, um, Onyx has a great opportunity to do some good, do some good with your money. Um, and actually, in this case, do some good with their money. Um, so once again, if you sign up for an Onyx Backcountry membership or an Onyx membership in general, you can just go, use promo code out of bounds, and you will save 20% off and you'll get $10 to donate towards any Avalanche Center in the U.S. of your choosing. And they'll give you the whole list and kind of give you the rundown. I think it's an amazing program. Couldn't think of a better company to work with um, on something like this. So check them out. Uh, we've got a bunch of new sponsors coming down the line, and I'm excited for you to hear from them as well. But uh, for now, leave a review on iTunes if you can. Um, follow us on the socials. Engage with the content. Sorry, I'm a little sick today. If you can't tell, I'm like nasally and sniffly and gross. Um, but anyway, um, I hope you guys really enjoyed this episode. I know I did. And actually I enjoyed both of them quite a bit. Um, Brody's been great. He's actually, that episode has been in the making for a long time. I've been trying to get him on for a couple of years now and I'm glad it finally worked out. Um, and he's a Fisher athlete now, so kind of works all in unison. Um, so enjoy these episodes with Heather Hansman and then with Brody Levin. Thanks. Bye. Who are you? Tell people about yourself. Then we'll go from there. Cool. Um, my name is Heather Hansman, and I'm a writer. And part of why I guess we're here talking today is because I wrote a book about skiing. That's amazing. That's um, coming out okay. soon. <laughs> I'm so excited for people to read this thing. Um, so tell first, let's back up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. How how did you get into writing? What makes you decide to be a writer? Period. That's like, especially in 2021. Like, there's I don't know how many people are getting. You tell me how many people are getting into writing. How many people are like physically writing books, doing things like that. Like what's, what's going on? Why did you start and why are we here now? That's like a, that's a loaded question. It's a super, it's a super loaded question. <laughs> um, I mean like the base level is like, I wasn't really good at anything else. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't think um, that can't be true. And it is interesting now. I mean, I wasn't good at anything else and I'm old. So like I didn't start <laughs> writing in 2021. Okay. Neither of these things can be true so far. So, <laughs> um, but I, um, how did I get into writing? I guess, like, I was an English major in college. Okay. I always, like, I was, like, a weird, nerdy kid with, like, a notebook. Like, I was always writing. But I don't think I knew that it could be a job. Like, I don't mm. think I knew that that was, like, something you could grow up and do. Yeah. Um, and so I, yeah, that was sort of, like, always, I always loved writing. I always loved reading. That was kind of, like, always in the background. Um, and then after college, I moved to Colorado. I moved to Vail Valley. And was like dinking around there, doing seasonal work, working in the mountain, waiting tables, kind of doing all those things. Um, and I started doing a little bit of writing for like the local newspaper there. Okay. Just picking stuff up. Um, and then this is one of those kind of funny stories when you look back at it, the pieces kind of like fall into place. But yeah. when I was doing it, I didn't have any like intention or point to it. Mm. But um, I ended up getting hurt. I blew up my shoulder. And basically had a season where like I couldn't I like couldn't do much, and I ended up getting an internship at Free Skier Magazine, Sick. which was down in Boulder. <laughs> um, and so I was like commuting down to Boulder, and Free Skier was like not really my skiing scene. Yeah, I like applied for my internship and was like, I'm a telemark skier. <laughs> <That was horrible. laughs> um, but I really kind of like fell in love with making magazines and writing and like yeah. putting all the pieces together and just kind of like how that all happened. Um, and so after that, I ended up applying to journalism school, went to journalism school in Boulder, 
did a shitload of internships. My, should I not swear? No, Is swear away. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, we're good. Um, and sort of like fell into this journalism path. Um, not, I don't think, yeah, I don't think any of it was like super intentional big picture at any point. It was just kind of like what I loved, what felt interesting, what was kind of like opening up in front of me. Mm. Um, I, after the free skier thing and like in the middle of school, I got an internship at Skiing Magazine. Okay. Um, and that ended up kind of transitioning into a job after I graduated. I was there for a little bit, then I went to Powder. And so it kind of just was like once, I don't know if my path is like helpful at all for anybody else, but like once I was I think it like is because the there's groove. no, yeah, people don't, I think the important thing is that people need to know that there doesn't have to be a path really. Like yeah. your path can be kind of erratic and random and like eventually you look back on it. You're like, okay, cool. Totally. Especially now when like there's so many if you want to write, there's so many different channels that you could do that through. Yeah. So I don't think, I mean, is, are they financially viable? That's like a that's kind of, that's, question. but that's always my question, yeah, right? It's like, yeah. how do people make careers out of this, right? Because we lose so many good writers, so many good, so many talented people in general that just go do something else because it's easier to get paid, right? Yeah. Like, and I'm not saying, like, I'm assuming you're not rolling, and I just met you five minutes ago, yeah. but I'm assuming you're, you're not like the richest, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't think you're the richest person that's ever lived. So, like, how, but you're making money doing this. You're, you you have a book, you have two books, and this is your job. So I guess that's kind of where I always wonder, like, how do people make money doing this, right? Yeah. And I was asking, I interviewed Connor Davis a few week, a couple weeks ago, and he used to work at Free Skier. He's writing all the time, doing freelance stuff. And my question is kind of the same to you. It's like, how do you make money doing this? Like, how do you actually make this your job? What did he say? Um, he was like, you don't make any money. <laughs> <laughs> was basically I, I it. I think that's a little... Like, you can definitely... You make a living at this. Like, this yeah. is a, it is a real thing. But I think you have to be, I mean, nobody gets into, like, ski stuff or writing stuff because they want to be the richest person on earth. True. Like, yeah, for sure. I think you have to, like, set your baseline yeah. realistically. Like, I'm going to be an average yeah. person. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think part of it is that you have to be, I mean, one of the skills about being a writer and freelancing in particular is, like, you kind of do have to be scrappy. Okay. And you have to be selling yourself and pushing and, like, reaching out to people and I think, like, if I were, if somebody was like, hey, I'm 18 years old and I want to be a writer, like, what should mm -hmm. I do? I think a lot of it is, like, start to reach out to editors. Like, write a bunch. Like, you you have to, nothing's going to fall into your lap if you want to do that. Yeah. I guess, yeah. yeah. I just wonder, like, how do you even ask, right? Like, how do you go, oh, give me money? Like, where do you even start? Yeah. Like, do, do you go, like, hey, will you pay me 50 bucks to write an article? You know, like, that's, I guess, the question, right, is because people don't know. People ask me this all the time about podcasting, and I'm like, I don't know. I just slide in people's DMs, and I'm like, hey, do you, <laughs> can you out. give us money? And like, I'm like, yeah. like, how much do you want? And I'm like, I don't know, 100 bucks. You know, like, but I think you like, say, like, hey, here's this product that I make that's good. Right. Here's my plan for like what I could do for you. Do you know it's good ahead of time? Like you as you writing for, are you like, this is a quality product? I think like to a degree. Like I think you, like everyone kind of knows like I, when the shit they make is good or not. <laughs> or like you can, like you get the tingle where you're like, yeah, I guess this is not my best work. Or, yeah. Like, this is actually kind of good. Yeah. I don't think I ever think my stuff is good. I think my stuff is either bad or okay. Or like, right. Uh, I'm yeah, like, yeah, totally. like this is acceptable product to put out there. And then that stuff I think ends up being better. Right. Yeah, like, like if I'm you a thought bit... it was great. You'd probably be some kind of psychopath. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think, I mean, in, we can totally nerd down on that story pitching stuff, but usually you would pitch an idea. You'd be like, hey, Adam, I have, yeah. you know, I want to write for podcast magazine. <laughs> I have this story about, you know, XYZ person. Here's how I'm going to do it. Yeah. So you have to like come up with the ideas. You have to pitch ideas. You can't okay. just be like, hey, I would like to do some things for you. Please pay me money. Like, right. You know, like you have to like 
when you're a writer, your voice and your ability is kind of the product and you have to Got be it. able to sell the product. Okay. And part of that is like, there is a hierarchy. You have to know who the people are. You have yeah. to like look at the magazine masthead and, you know, figure out who the editors are. So. Yeah. It's very. I don't know if I'm answering your question at all. <laughs> you are. No, you totally are. I'm just thinking about the answer because it's a good answer. It's like, you have to be scrappy and you have to like, actually like know how to do this. And so much of the ski industry and I've said this a lot, is knowing people, like it's meeting yeah, people and you have 100%. to actively like put yourself out there, yeah. which for a lot of people sucks, right? If you're not totally. a extroverted person, that's a difficult thing to do. And there are gatekeepers and it is totally. insidery and it is yeah. like 100%. And I think, you know, like magazines on their own or any kind of, you know, channel for writing isn't separate from that. Yeah. Like that's true too. How, what was the difference for you working for internship or not for free skier, powder skiing like what what's different about those experiences right because you said free skier wasn't really your scene initially like it's I, I could see that I guess like free skier now is also very different from a few years ago so talk to me a little bit about what the differences are there yeah I think that that's also something I think if you were an, an outsider from the skiing world or maybe not like as dorked out on magazines like those places all have different voices they cover different right. things when I was at free skier it was probably 2008 or 2009 okay. and it was like height of the like x games park era right. and like everyone else who worked there like knew was like had grown up with all the athletes and like knew everybody <laughs> right. and i was just kind of like hello i'm new <laughs> what's I'm your here. name yeah, yeah. <laughs> i don't know what that trick is yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so it just like wasn't my wasn't my scene and all those yeah i think like the voice this is one of the things that i think is really interesting about writing is like the way you tell a story can be super super different depending on like who you're trying to tell it to and what you're pulling in and what like what aspect of something even something as specific as skiing like you can pull out different parts of it right and so i think all those places i think skiing and powder are a little more similar there yeah but like free skier is kind of looking at a different side of that yeah how did you feel about powder like closing stores because that's been a obviously it's been yeah, a thing that people yeah, yeah. have still talked about for the last year I mean just, I don't know I can't remember when the last episode was December probably of yeah. last year so it's been almost a whole calendar year and people are still talking about it yeah. regularly because powder was the spot for like preseason stoke it's like yeah. the magazine that you get and and you're like like this point in the year you're like oh here's yes the thing that's ski missing. movies start next yeah. and then you know we'll start to get first snow and people will you know, post the white ribbons and like, that's like what it is. Right. So what did, what did powder closing stores mean to you? It, it just, it sucks on so many different levels. Okay. Like I think it's brutal on that point you're talking about. This kind of like cultural yeah. point that feels important. It sucks because a bunch of my friends lost their jobs. Totally. Like this, it, it, I think it's like on the kind of industry side in terms of like, our magazine's thriving, our publication's thriving, what's the, like, media, you know, the world that I work in and live in feels a little anemic right now, mm -hmm. and, like, that's an example of that. And so it's, like, for the people on the inside, it's brutal, and also for the people on the outside, the readers, like, the people who, like, get that thing. Right. And I'm not, like, I can't really speak to kind of, like, the inner workings of, like, why it happened and how it happened. No, yeah. But it seemed pretty brutal from the little I know about it. Totally. It did. So I, I think, yeah, it just like, it just sucks. Totally. I agree. It's, it's, yeah, it does. It feels like something was kind of taken away a little bit. It's yeah. like, I remember, 
even like getting the gear guides is like that shows up from powder and you're like okay this is really like this is an important piece of literature yeah. on the retail side it's really important for me because like people see that it's like powder has that standing where you're like these are real like these are real people talking real skiers you know the people in the magazine that are testers like yeah, yourself yeah. and other people like it you're like okay these people know what they're talking about i trust this opinion versus some of the other magazines are just like okay how much did they pay to get here you know yeah. like it's it, it was authentic i think in a lot of ways and and i kind of miss that yeah and just like having i don't know yeah it feels like it's just like a piece of the you know there's all these pieces that make for me like make skiing in that world sort of like fun and interesting mm-hmm. like the storytelling piece is a big piece of that for me yeah and like to have that you know like most of the places that i've like had a job in my life don't exist anymore really and like that's pretty weird yeah that is insane that's yeah, yeah. so how does that make you feel about writing in general that was one of the things i told you i was going to ask you about yeah. is like how do you feel about where things are as a writer writing books like Books are a very physical thing. I was telling you before we started, like I annotate a lot when I read and without that, like reading on a Kindle or reading yeah, on a computer, I can't, like for me, it doesn't work at all. I have good friends that I respect a lot and they like, they love it. It's all they do is audiobooks and, you know, Kindle and on iPads. And for me, it doesn't work. For some people it does. So how, I don't know, how, how do you view that space now with all the changes that are going on technology wise and like how people value holding a book, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a good question because I think it is it is different for everybody and it's hard not to be like a stodgy cynical old yeah, person yeah how is it for you like, you're not okay, this you're is not old. You know, like, <laughs> back in my day we had paper <laughs> magazines that showed up in your mailbox <laughs> but yeah I do feel like it's a different experience like I know I read differently on like on a computer than I do on a paper copy like I, I get you know digital books out of the library and I'm like what did I just read like I yeah don't, like it doesn't I don't absorb it the same way and I think it's the same with a magazine like you pick up a magazine like a really well-designed magazine that has like micro content and like yeah. stories are all laid out in an interesting way like it's such a different that feels like an experience which yeah. is like here I am just like pouring information into my brain yeah on the internet and I think that I mean this is maybe like one of my bigger capitalism points right now but I think that like a lot of people don't realize how big of that a deal that could be until it's gone Mm. and part of the problem with like the ecosystem of that right now is like people aren't subscribing to magazines companies aren't buying ads because they can get engagement on Instagram right the funding the the fact that like things are going away is such a like bigger problem for how for like how we look at the world yeah and so that feels sort of like that's one of the things that I get like cynical and overwhelmed about where I'm like, mm. are we just not going to have nice things anymore? Yeah. Because so, it's all available. Digital. Yeah. Like we can't have physical, nice yeah. things to look at. Yeah. It's a bummer. And I think for me, it's like, okay, if I can still like plant my little flag and still like try and make cool stuff. Like, no, I think it's really important. I yeah. think it's really important physically. And it's even small things like Malchek posted that link to that drawn from here book that Pollard made and he oh, made it yeah. line and it's like the, he has the physical book at his place when I was there and I'm like this is amazing I want this but yeah, I didn't even yeah, know yeah. it existed like it's completely beautiful but now like they didn't sell enough so because like maybe not, people didn't know people yeah. didn't know or whatever the reason and it was expensive right so like it's hard to do it and he, he just posted the whole thing online and I'm like this is not the same it's for me the same I want experience. I want to buy the book I'll give you whatever you want just I want to buy the book right yeah. 
Um, so I think a lot of people have that in the same situation with powder, right? Like totally. it's like powder might still be here if everybody that says they were like missing powder subscribed at that time. Yeah. You know? And it's not, it's obviously like not that simple. Like, right. It's totally <laughs> more, yeah, that's yeah, more complicated than that. And I'm fully yeah. aware, but, but it isn't, it's an interesting question too. It's like, how do you make people like, what could they have done to make you know that book existed? Right. Cause like we get so much of our information online. Like you can't, you can't like just live in the like cabin in the woods where you get your paper magazines delivered. Right. Oh yeah. Like that doesn't, that's not realistic, but yeah. And, and I think it's partly that it, in the ski industry, we have the same people who make the product promoting the product mm -hmm. a lot of time. And I think that tire, like I can tell you firsthand, it makes me exhausted promoting an episode. It feels inauthentic. Like it takes away a little bit of the special part of the episode that I did if I'm like, go listen, go listen, go listen, go oh, listen, and right? And people know that. Like, and people can see through that. It's exhausting. Like, yeah. I, and I don't want to do that, right? Yeah. But I want people to listen. It's like, how do you get people to listen, but also not take it away from yourself? Because, yeah. like, a lot of these interviews are real. Like, you hold on to them. And I'm sure the same is for you when you talk to somebody and you're like, okay, that was great. And I want to put this on paper and I want to write about it. I want to talk about it. But you also don't want to be like promoting it and shoving it down people's yeah. throats. You want them to want it if they want it. Yeah. But how do people know they, they want know. it they if they don't know, know it exists? Yeah, yeah I mean, exactly. This is like if you have good ideas about promoting a book. Like, yeah, please. Or a podcast. Yeah. Hit us up. <laughs> yeah. Anyone out there. Yeah. <laughs> but it is. I was talking to a friend of mine who had a book that came out last year um, about this. And she was like, it's weird because it's like it feels so scuzzy. <laughs> to be Don't like, hey, everybody, like, buy this thing that came out of my brain. Yeah. But, like, if it's your friend's book or your friend's podcast or something, it's like yeah. you're all in being like, hey, this thing is great. Everyone pay attention. Yeah, but is it so. great because it's your friend? And then it's like yeah. that thing. Is it great because it's your friend or is it great because it's, it's great? It's great on its face. And yeah. sometimes they're, they're great and you just don't know they exist. So many times, right? Like, a great product that's out there you just don't know exists. Yeah. It's never in front of you. And, like, and, like we're getting know. so much information in through our eyeballs all the time. Yeah, How it's got to be filter? exhausting. So on that topic, how do you promote a book? How do you promote what you do? How do you feel about the writing? This one hasn't been re been released yet, so yeah. you're probably not fully there yet. But on Downriver, when you're promoting that, what like what do you feel while you're pushing it, I guess? Gross. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I feel like that's, I mean, this is like another thing about like working for yourself and having yeah. to kind of like yeah. be the whole machine is like that's not the that I like or that I came in for. Yeah. But it's also, like you were saying, like people don't know about things unless you tell them about things. Mm. And one of the coolest parts about Downriver, and I was like really freaked out, like pushing it online ahead of time felt gross. I was really nervous about, I mean, this was two years ago, so I could like yeah. go actually do events in person. Right. And like when we could be out in the world. <laughs> um, but like one of the coolest parts of it, actually like the coolest part is like, and a book is sort of different from articles in this that people like really are like psyched to talk to you about it. Or, yeah. Like, want to know, like want to like hear more about it. And just like being able to like interact with people and talk about it after the fact is such a special part of it. Mm. So like I like that part more than I thought I would. Yeah. But like, getting to that point, it feels icky. Yeah. I, I think the people that know, know, right? And I think with, with Powder Days, which is the new book that comes out November... November 9th. November 9th. Tell your friends. <laughs> As we're like, how do you, yeah. promote, how do you promote things? Um, Go on podcast. <laughs> the, the great thing about it is like the way I found out was because all of our mutual friends were posting about it. They're like, yeah. I read this book and it's like, this is amazing. Like, I'm so psyched about it. And I think that's the way... That's what got me interested in talking to you. And then I talked to Mouth Check and Mouth Check. It's like, you have to talk. Like, have to. And I was like, this is great. Like, this yeah. is... 
this is what it should be, right? Somebody brings you a thing and then I immediately feel connected to what you did. And I think that's how, at least in the ski community, how people get involved with things, right? Totally. It's why it's, people have their favorite brands. It's why people have their favorite ski to ski. Like, yeah, that's part it. of it is community. And that's been, that's been actually a really interesting sort of like nut to try and crack with this book because I yeah. want it to be something that like people who are in this world and like live and breathe it every day and live in the mountains. Like I want it to feel like something that feels true and right and resonates but I also don't want to like make it too insidery and alienate people. So that's been kind of like a funky line to try and walk. It was very relatable for me, like immediately was huh. relatable for me. And I was like, this is great. Like, and I'm really, I'm excited about it. But in your own words, what is the book about? What, a, what are we talking about here? What's Powder Days? I mean, the headline on it is Ski Bum, Ski Towns, and the Future of Chasing Snow. But what is it actually about for yeah. you? I think I have a really hard time kind of doing the one-line elevator pitch, which might be the, like, marketing problem. That's, yeah, which is why <laughs> it's great to be on a podcast. A you book. do not need yeah. to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You do not need the one-line. We just need to, like, why did you write this book? Yeah. Days? I guess, like, the, the thing I've been telling people is that it's about it, the idea of, like, living the dream, like, quote, unquote, and then, like, why it's not always dreamy. Right. But, like, why we're still obsessed with it. Mm. So it's sort of about the idea of, like, being a skier. And I don't, like love the phrase ski bum but kind of being like a diehard dirtbag skier mm. and like where the sort of like fantasy myth of what that is comes from so like going back through like the history of skiing kind of how these like how the ski industry how ski culture developed how films and magazines and movies kind of like built up this image um and then why kind of why people get obsessed with skiing so sort of like mm. um the culture and then also sort of like the psychology and the brain science and like why certain people are drawn to being in the mountains. Um, and then kind of like what that world actually looks like. So what like housing in mountain towns looks like, what, you know, who gets to be, who gets to call themselves a skier. Yeah. Um, and then kind of like what the future is going to look like. So climate change, I dug into kind of like mental health around, you know, like the things that are hard about physically risky things and also like, yeah living in places and existing in an industry that can be super unequal. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And then sort of like, what is it going to look like in the future? Yeah. And I think one of the kind of like, sometimes I'm like, did I just write this book to kind of like try and figure out my own life? <laughs> <laughs> like this idea, like, you know, like I moved to Colorado when I was 21 cause I was like obsessed with this idea Yeah. and it like didn't totally work. You know, like I washed out of it a little bit, but I still have friends who are like trying to buy houses and trying to have kids when yeah. they're like, you know, ski patrollers and trying to make it work. And it's like, how does that, like, how does the reality line up with the fantasy? Right. How, so looking back on it, I guess, what do you feel now? Like about that, like about being a ski bum, like, and why don't you like that term too? It's another yeah. question I wanted to point. It just feels like a little like cheesy, maybe like the phrase isn't right. It feels silly. I think yeah, yeah. that's why I don't. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. It's like action sports. <laughs> like one of those like catchphrases that just feels gross. How do you feel about that dream now, like being, you know, a ski bum or whatever, right? Like, yeah. how do you feel about that dream today? Because that's a dream that everybody has, I think, that's yeah. in the industry. They're like, I want to go do this every single day of my life. I want to live in the town. I want to party in the town. I want to hang out. I want to I want to be part of this big community. And I don't, I don't know. I, I don't necessarily understand, like, I'm 26, so, like, that should still be where I'm at. But I've, I looked at that and I was like, okay, like, it's just not my reality. How do, how do other people view it? I guess. Yeah, I think that's like exactly the the thing I wanted to get into in the book, and 
tried to get into is that it was like it both the upsides and the downsides feel really really clear to me Mm. and the kind of like yeah like so many of that sort of like skiing world has shaped my life in so many ways like you know my friends the people I love the way I spend my time my job but I also know why it's like really really hard and why I felt sort of like anxious and freaked out like it I couldn't for me doing it every day the downsides outweighed the upsides and I think to to be that I'm like really fascinated by the idea of obsession and like why people get obsessed with things and I think to be that kind of like obsessive kind of like driven on one you know on one track Mm. towards one thing is really fascinating to me yeah so it's part part of that too is like who who can do that and like what do you have to give up to make it work yeah are you like that do you have like do you get that one thing and you're like this is all I want to do kind of yeah yeah I think I can be pretty pretty obsessive I'm like the complete like, like I don't know like I'm completely erratic and I'm super obsessed with things for like a little while and then it's like it either sticks for forever mm-hmm. right and it just it no longer becomes an obsession it just becomes a part of my life yeah and then or like I drop it right away right like it's like I have that personality because I feel like people are either they're able to be just obsessed with things always or I don't know it feels like for me that dream is not a dream that I was ever really obsessed with it's mm-hmm. something that I liked when I was like 18 and I was yeah. like I need to do this and then I was like it doesn't apply to me how can I how can I still work a lot of those parts in and make this happen? Yeah. Um, how did you, yeah. How did you think about it? Cause I feel like that's one of the big questions, right? Like what do you, what, what burners do you pump up? Like which things, if you want the pieces, what do you focus on? A lot of it was for me was where I live. Mm. I like, I didn't want to move. Um, I, like I wanted to be in Western mass. Like I really like Western mass. It's, it's beautiful. People are like educated, but there's a ton of different culture. Like, close to everything close to the airport you're close to vermont close to new hampshire like so many things everybody just thinks boston like when i say i'm from yeah. but it's not boston it's like very different i love that like whenever people are like oh you're from the east coast and you're like it's just yeah, yes. fight, yeah, your, yeah. fight your stereotypes yeah exactly it's it's very bizarre and i didn't want to go to colorado i didn't want to like it sounds yeah. cool but i like being able to visit that place and be like i have friends here i'm here for a week i'm happy it feels like i have a better connection to that so one of my other questions for you is like, you live in Seattle area, right? So what do you like about living in that area? Do you still feel a connection to the mountains in the same way? Does it affect, I don't know, who you identify, like how you identify with yourself? Yeah, I'm kind of on my way out of Seattle. So okay. <laughs> I don't feel that connected. And I think part of it was I moved there from California when I started freelancing and I was okay. like, okay, I want to be, you know, like... I was, I like loved the idea of being in the Cascades and like being in that part of the country. Yeah. I had some really good friends there. So yeah. the community aspect was a big part of it. Um, but Seattle's kind of far from the mountains. Like the mountains are totally. really cool, but like you're, you're schlepping a lot. Yeah. So that's like a big, the next place is a big point of debate in my life right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What are you thinking? You don't have to give up everything, but like, I, I want to know, yeah. I'm really interested in the way that people decide places yeah. to move. Not just like, I have a job there, I have to move there, but like yeah. why, when you have a choice, why do you choose to move to one place or yeah. the other? My sort of hot spots are Western Colorado okay. and Vermont. And then my partner just got offered a job in Boise. So all of a sudden Boise's on the table as of two weeks ago on the table. So. <laughs> yeah. So like I said, contentious thing right now, but it, it is like, 
yeah, that's something I think about a lot. Like, how do you have all those factors that feel important? Yeah. And the, like the access, the people, the culture. Yeah. And I think that was one of the reasons why I kind of burned out of mountain towns is because it, it did feel too one tone. Yeah. It feels very like people are just trying to sell themselves the whole time mm. almost. It feels like they're like trying to sell them sell themselves the idea, I guess, mm. that this is like the way that they exist and the way that they have to live, yeah. right? Like I hear like oh like I'm just keep oh my god do this and I But do there's that like thing. actually super interesting one of the one of the coolest parts about doing the book research was sort of the like mental health sort of like psychology behind it. And part of that thing, I mean like you start skiing every day, you jack up all your dopamine sensors mm-hmm. and then you get in this world where like it's kind of a feedback loop. Yep. And to like sustain that, you kind of have to tell yourself this story that like what I'm doing, your brain is trying to like force you to get these things. And then like, I can't remember how the guy explained it. There's a guy that, um, psychologist in Jackson and he was like, because you dopamine is like a wanting chemical. So it's not like you get a hit of it and then you feel better. Mm. You get a hit of it and you want more. Oh, like it's like a drug basically. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so you have all these people who also like have jacked up their levels so high that like they can't then move back to Connecticut and work in an office and go to Stowe four days a year because oh. it like makes them unhappy. And it's like that feeds back into your kind of like self sense of self identity. So it's really hard to kind of jump ship when you're in it. Huh? I never thought about it like that. It's, yeah. It's, it's actually like super fast. And like talking to these guys, I was like, I know so many people like that. Totally. Me too. I'm like, yeah. you're saying this and I'm like, I know yeah. I can name a dozen right now. And it's like, yeah. What do you do with that? Yeah. Like, what do you do when you go back? Like, what do you do when you go back and yeah. have a regular job and you don't have that feedback? Yeah, and then you bit. see all your friends on Instagram who are, like, yeah. you know, like, skiing, whatever, yeah. first thing in the morning. Yeah, it's, like, this whole sort of, like, feedback loop of what's actually... I think it takes a lot of, like, self-determination to, like, fight outside of that. Do you look at what people put online, like, whether it's online or even what they tell you from, like, what they did? And do you go, like... Are, are they actually happy doing this? Like, are they happy or are they just happy in the moment? Like, I, I ask myself that a lot, I yeah. think, because because I live in an area that doesn't have that great skiing, right? And I'm looking all year at all my friends across the country, and I'm just like, where do I, like, are they actually happy doing? Like, I, I wouldn't be, I don't know how I would feel fulfilled every day just doing that. So I, I guess I wonder, are people actually happy I doing that? I think it that? totally depends on who you are. Like, I think, yeah. and I think that's, that's part of why, like, I feel like this book did not come away with a, like, clean takeaway of, like, this is how to do the thing. Because, like, I think it totally, I think some people that, like, desire for that feeling and the way that that shapes their life can be enough. Yeah. And I think for some people it can't. And I think that mm-hmm. that can also change over your, like, maybe your, I think that can be a hard point, too, where you're like, okay, I don't exactly want this anymore. Right. How do I pivot out of it? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I remember talking to a guy in Jackson, and he was like, Skiing just, like, fills every need for me. Like, when I need some headspace, it's great. When I need adrenaline, it's great. When I want to go see people, it does that. When I want to be alone, it does that. Mm. And I think some people can, like, that can be the thing. That's enough. Yeah. But I don't think everyone, like, I don't necessarily, that didn't, that wasn't enough for me. Right. And I think it's sort of, like, how can you, is there a way to kind of, like, create a more sustainable fantasy or, like, a more balanced? Yeah. Yeah. Especially in these, like, when you're, like, I spent a month in Aspen just now, and it's, like, you can't, there's not a house in Aspen for under, like, $10 million. That's what like, I was how, just Like, ask. you can't, like, trying to, like, do that feels so impossible. Yeah, it's, like, it, we are. We've kind of priced ourselves out of living in, like, because yeah. all the real estate has been bought up, and 
it's going for so much money that like living, owning property in a mountain town does not seem like yeah. a viable option for any of us. Anybody that actually does it, right? It's like all people who, it's their third rental house, their yeah. 19th rental house or like, uh, yeah, that seems, that part bums me yeah. out a lot about like where we're going because it's only getting worse. Yeah. And I think we saw a ton of that because of COVID, right? Like everybody's buying everything available in mountain towns as their second home. Yeah. So that when they come back, especially like we have a store at Mount Snow and, when we were there, it's like all of a sudden there's a ton of people there in the summer when normally you can count the cars that pass by yeah. on Route 100 on one hand, you know? And then all of a sudden there's tons of people that are just like, oh, I'm here from New York and this yeah. is where I live now. I'm a resident now. Yeah, because like I work in finance and I can work somewhere. Yeah, I can work yeah. from home and that that's happening. And now people are like, I want to live somewhere. And it's hard to fault those people. Yeah, like you can't like, fault I want them. I want that too. Yeah. I'm, I'm only like kind of shitting on it because... I want it, right? Yeah. Like, I want that thing. I want to be able to do that. It's a bummer that it's going to be so expensive, yeah. but that'll change the dream in a lot of ways for a lot yeah. of people, right? I Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting, too. Like, I mean, when, like, I think a lot about, like, the point where you maybe were, like, making adult choices versus, like, when I was, which mm. was, like, before the recession, before where I was like, sure, I'll go mess around for a couple years in the mountains. Yeah. It's, like, no consequences. And I think now... I don't know, like, the financial pressures just feel so much higher. The inequality feels, like, so much more skewed. Like, it feels, yeah. like, if everything feels kind of harder now. And I think part of it is that, like, yeah, how we, like, let these mountain towns get out of control. Yeah, and, like, what? How do you, like, how did, and, like, Aspen's been being Aspen for a really long time. So, like. <laughs> Still. Yeah. It's gone to the point where it's absurd. Yeah. Like, in Vermont, it's the same thing. It's, like, oh, yeah. you want to buy a place in Burlington or Stowe or whatever. Like, and, like, no one, like, all these places, I've been up there for the past couple weeks and, like, there's no one to like work anywhere because no one's totally. gonna live like you know like all the restaurants are only open a couple of days a week. Yeah, that like, there's is no a, yeah, that's, like no real people <laughs> can live there. Yeah, no, no, no people that want that job, no people that are gonna sustain that economy are are around. Yeah, like there, it's the people who like kind of work in an office and like don't really leave their house a lot, yeah. and that's. Yeah, that bumps me out. <laughs> Everything is bad. <laughs> Everything is bad. There's a lot of positive, I think, that kind of came out of this whole, like, especially the last year, right? I think COVID isn't, I don't think COVID's changing everything for the rest of time, but I think it's changed a lot in terms of the way that we're going to do things for mm -hmm. the rest of the time. Like, I think that some things were highlighted, like, I don't know, living situations, right, is one of the ones that have, has been talked about more in the last year, I feel like, than it had in the previous yeah, decade. Yeah, or like, like burnout, work-life balance. People like talking about their mental health, yeah, right? Like yeah. that seems like it's been a huge issue for people to talk about over the last year because, and it's probably, to me, the best thing that's come of it is that people feel comfortable talking about it totally. now because professional athletes are coming out and like, Simone Biles is like, I can't, I'm not yeah. going to compete. Like I'm not doing, I'm not going to do this and I'm doing it for me, right? Yeah. And I think that has been a huge benefit and that'll trickle down to a lot of yeah. people in mountain towns that have these issues. And right? also, like, just because I'm doing something that's, like, fun, like, <laughs> that I get to do doesn't mean there aren't hard parts. It doesn't mean there aren't struggles. <clears throat> yeah. Like, I think a lot of the discourse on, like, around, like, she should feel lucky to be an Olympic athlete. And you're like, okay, but, like, what she's still, that doesn't mean she's not a human. And also, <laughs> like, do you know how much work it oh is my God, to be? I, yeah. Yeah. Like, what is, anybody that says anything about that, I'm just yeah. like, you, just go back in your rocking chair like yeah. just go away but I think that can be really hard and in, in mountain towns where I think part yeah. of the like kind of like standard discourse is like best day ever like that was awesome and when you're like actually I didn't feel awesome yeah like, but then how do you say really that and not hard. be a bummer yeah, right and like, not how be a do you bummer, not be your bummer friend not feel like you're like weird or doing something wrong mm. 
And I do feel like that conversation is starting to change, which I think is really good. It's starting to happen all the time. And yeah. I think I think it's great because people are like, oh, it's okay to not be okay, right? Like, it's yeah. okay to be just, like, kind of going through the motions for a little bit and you kind of figure yourself out, you figure your situation out. And that's actually one of the things I liked in the book was that it, I know you said it's not a guide, but like yeah. it is kind of a guide. Like it's like, this is your guide, right? Hmm. Like this is in a lot of ways. <laughs> Don't be me. <laughs> yeah, well, no, but it's like, this is things, it kind of highlights things that people, I don't know, can do, want to do, should want to do, should not want to do. Like you're not telling them what to do. You're just telling it as a story. Yeah. And that part feels way more interesting to me than like, we went somewhere rad and got rad and it was rad. Like that, like that is like not, yeah, that's like fundamentally uninteresting to me, which I feel like yeah. a lot of times can be the like surface level stories about yeah. skiing or like about any sports. How do people tell better stories then about their experiences with these kind of things? Because that's one of the, like everybody has something to say, yeah. especially in the ski industry. Like everybody's done a thing and nobody wants to hear what everybody else yeah. has done in a lot of cases. And I think there is that kind of like, social pressure to be like oh let me one-up this person did the yeah, thing. Sick yeah. And, yeah I think yeah how do you tell better stories that's such a good question I think it's like you try and be real about it hmm. like I th- and I think you I don't know the parts of the stories that I generally let me think about this because this is like a bigger question yeah totally because I think about and thinking about like this book and thinking about writing in general one of the kind of like frameworks I have is like okay what do I like to read like what do I want to how do I like put something out in the world that's like that I would like hmm. and I think that in thinking about the stories that I like or that resonate with me or that feel interesting it's always like the weirdo characters or like you're feeling hmm. like you're getting in on a secret or like, like yeah I don't that's need a to big go, one like you went and like skied off the biggest mountain or whatever, like that's not necessarily cool. Or, like that's not necessarily, like there isn't necessarily texture in that. Hmm. So I think, yeah, weird details. And I think also like being, I know I do and I think other people do like to kind of see themselves reflected in things. So if you can kind of tell a story that resonates with other people, you know, that's like, hey, I was, you know, like struggling with this piece. I went and, you know, ski this thing with my friends and I was totally freaked out and they were great. Like, I think that's something that people can connect mm. with. Yeah. I think the sensor, like texture, I think was a really good word to use for the, because it is, it's like, you can feel it. Like, and I, I was thinking about it, even like in the beginning in the prelude or whatever, it's like you, you're explaining the way that the skiing felt. Right. And that sensory aspect of mm. it adds so much to the story because you're like, oh, I know that feeling. And you kind of get that tingle in your skin where you're like, this is, we were talking about before. It's like, you know, it's good. You have that tingle, right? Like that's the same thing you get when you're explaining, like not just saying, oh, I did a sick pow turn. It was dope. Like it was great. Like Like, that that doesn't mean anything. Like what do you talk? Everybody did that dude. But like saying it, the way that you say it and the way that it's presented is, is so much more special, I guess, because you feel all the other things involved with it. Right. <laughs> it's it that's what it is it's not yeah. just the thing that you're talking about it's all the things that go into the thing yeah did you read barbarian days no oh it's about surfing it won a pulitzer a couple years back but it is this like it's really it's amazing um and it's sort of this like big story of this guy who had grown up surfing and traveled around the world and how surfing is kind of woven through his life and i feel like he did such a good job of explaining surfing yeah in a way that wasn't like i think so often when you're talking about like something physical it's so easy to be like overblown or cheesy or Mm. like drilling in what it 
feels like or like why it feels good in a way that isn't obnoxious mm. like is often the hard part and that kind of thing yeah and it's like it's hard to do well i think it's impossibly hard to do well, I think, especially with skiing. Like, yeah, it's, it's like, so what hard. words do you use? <laughs> especially, like, I'm having this issue lately where I'm, like, I'm trying to get new people into the sport, right? Like, it's, like, that's the thing I really want to do, and that's the thing that I really care about is, like, people that haven't skied, right? Um, like, my dad's Palestinian. Like, I have a bunch of Arab friends, and yeah. they've never skied in their entire lives, right? Um, my mom is from West Springfield, Mass., and she's the whitest lady I know in my, she's the best, but like, it's just a different dynamic. So I like have both sides of the experience, but it's like passing that on to someone that has no idea, mm -hmm. like explaining to them why skiing is cool. Because the first time you go skiing, you're like, this sucks. Yeah, I'm falling like all over cold, the place. I'm like, like I'm like in a pretzel. Yeah. Like I have to carry all this stuff. Why do you need 40 things to go do one activity? It's like, if I want to go play basketball, I bring shoes and a ball. And I have to go totally. maybe find a hoop, you know, yeah. like, or I can just dribble in the driveway, it's free. you know, and it's free. It costs, not, it costs the shoes and the yeah. ball and that's it. And you can go do it wherever. And then skiing is like, oh yeah, it's so amazing. It sounds so elitist when you talk to somebody else and you're like, yep, you need skis, you need bindings, you need boots, you need bag, you need hats, gloves, yeah. jacket. And if it's not the right stuff, people are going to pick on you on the hill. There's so much insider elitist. Yeah. So ridiculous. Like it's so crazy. But at the same time, you're like, I just want to give everybody the nicest stuff. Yeah. Like the bad stuff shouldn't even really exist, right? It should all be reasonably cheap. Everybody should be, but this is capitalism, yeah. right? You get the better stuff. Yeah. It's like the, the, the breakover point of like feeling good, the, like the, the barrier is so high. Totally. To there. Totally. And I think, I know you've been thinking about this a lot. It's like, it's really hard to be like, okay, yeah, how do you get, there's a financial bar barrier, there's social mm -hmm. barriers. Like, how do you get people over the hump yeah. and make them feel included and like, yeah, make them, give them enough of it that they want to come back? Yeah, because like that initial experience is not necessarily what you're experiencing. I can tell you for sure it wasn't yeah. for me. Like day one experience was not day whatever I'm on now. Yeah, yeah. That experience is like, now I feel like I'm a part of this. I feel like it's it's what I do. It's like part of my culture. Yeah. It's part of everything, right? It feels second nature. But to somebody who it's, like I took my uncle a few years ago and I distinctly remember him like, take for the first time ever, like took his skis off and he's like, I'm walking down there. Like, I don't yeah. want to do it. This shit's hard, man. Yeah. Like it's harder than I thought it was. And he's like sliding down his boots and then eventually he's just like, okay, fine, I'll try. Like I'll yeah. actually give it another go. And now he skis and it's all good. Like, but takes a lot to get to that point. If he was my uncle and I was like, I'm fuck taking you, you dude. I have you're going, you don't have a choice. You're getting all the best gear. You're going for all the, right? Like that's what you have to do in order to get somebody into it correctly a lot of times. And yeah. it's so hard to like, I don't know, like when I posted a while ago about like including more people, it's like a lot of comments were like, oh, well, nobody's saying don't come. That, but da saying don't come and making people explicitly feel welcome are such different things. Exactly. That's yeah. what I'm trying to like get at is like feeling welcome is so different than being like just around. Like it's just a different yeah. thing. Or even though like I feel like there's a lot of kind of nonprofits and organizations that like will take kids for a couple times. Yeah. And like that's great. But then what's the pathway? Like you need, yeah. you know, like the money to even like get up to the mountain. Like there's so many totally. things. Yeah. No, I think about that a lot in skiing and a lot in... I mean, there's a bunch of different pathways, but even in just this kind of like resort conglomerationification of skiing, <laughs> like how do you get like we grew up skiing at like Neshoba, yeah, and like Cannon, which are like state owned, like the like totally. those places. Not that skiing is cheap, but there were like it felt like the barrier to entry was lower. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Cannon that, still like, does a great yeah. job at that, like to, to this day. And like, there's not that sort of like even a place where it's like you can go, you don't have to spend two hundred bucks for one ticket. 
Mm. Like there's not that many places. That's why it feels so dirty to me when Vale's like, oh, we're, we have this program where new people can go skiing, but also it's $217 yeah. to go ski for a day. It's like, like, all right, then if you want to fix the problem, let people yeah. go skiing for less money if it's their first, right? Like create a program where it's like, it's your first time. It's your first week skiing, right? Like here's $50 lift tickets, right? Like yeah. make it accessible for those people. Like a big part, like my family kind of skied growing up, but my high school in Cambridge, which is pretty urban, had a ski club and you, if you sold breakfast at the high school, you could ski for free. That's amazing. Yeah, totally awesome. Um, and then I think it was like 40 bucks or something and you'd go up for the day if you didn't do the make, you know, breakfast thing mm-hmm. and you got rentals, you got a ride up there, you got lift tickets and it was like all winter long. And that was because we had like a gym teacher and a science teacher who were obsessed with skiing. Totally. Like they made the program happen. So that's like not, that's like definitely a privilege to even have that. But I think there was a lot of people who wouldn't have done it otherwise who like then had at least a little bit of a foothold. Yeah. I think those kids programs are so important yeah. like to start early on, like, and they're, my high school doesn't even have a program anymore. Yeah. Like they're, it's eliminated, right? Because of that exact reason, right? The people that started the program were big skiers and now they're gone. They're not there anymore. So there's nobody, to there's like a couple people it. there, but they're like, you know, it's expensive to go skiing. If the kids aren't signing up because it's expensive, I'm not going to do it at all. Yeah. And then that completely alienates the kids that want to go really badly. And then it's just a trickle down effect yeah. to like. I feel like it's almost the same as the like magazine elimination thing where it's like we don't Mm. there's like how do you keep the things that like maybe aren't like financially super profitable but are like add value how do we like societally keep those things is there a way to make them financially viable though that that's one of the way there has to be there has to be there has to be and i think pocket's doing a good thing with like outside's doing outside plus and i think that's really cool I hope so, yeah. I don't know if it's the way, right? Like, yeah. I subscribe to it, but, like, I'm the anomaly, right? Like, I'm yeah. going to subscribe to it no matter what because I want to support skiing. Like, yeah. that's that's the most important I thing I had this to conversation me. with, like, college roommates this weekend about, we were talking about New York Times, and they were both like, oh, yeah, I'm, like, on my mom's account, and I just use her password. And I'm like, dude, you're grown up. Like, pay for your own. Like, if you want Netflix. the things, I use yeah. my mom's Netflix yeah. account, and like, I don't feel bad. Like, it's yeah. like, it's, but... People do yeah, that. Yeah, what's the break? How do you point? separate yeah. Netflix from, from ski magazine? From like an independently owned magazine or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Or uh, small ski resort when you're like, oh, but I could. And I think the like, yeah, like the mega passes are super interesting on that front. Because like, yeah, sure. Yeah. It's great for me to have an icon pass because I'm mobile and we have a van and like I can go ski a bunch of places. Yeah. But like if you're somebody who's just getting into it, like the, the privilege level is so skewed. Yeah. And, and it's I don't like, know how to walk that back. Yeah, I don't know how to walk it back. I, it, it's insane because we're talking about $215 day lift tickets or you buy a set. It's not like one's cheap, right? Yeah. That's why like Indy Pass is so great. Yeah. I, I really enjoy that that's an option. It's still not cheap. It's still $300, $400, something like that. Is it way more value? Totally. But you still have to, there is a drive to each place, right? Like yeah. it's not consistent to the same place. It's not necessarily in the urban area. Like it's, there's a lot of things that are still playing in that same area and then you're going to compare it to an icon pass and yeah. pass a collective whatever you know yeah and meanwhile it's like when you're going for the bargain thing what's getting lost in the that you don't see behind the scenes totally or like who are the people who can't compete because of that who are getting like the resorts that are getting priced out or yeah yeah what does a magic or a canon yeah. do like, like a place where like and then they don't have the like big pocket group fundings to pull in to like build new infrastructure or new snowmaking or yeah takes money to run these places yeah. like it really does like as much at the end of the day that is it's a capitalistic society and yeah. we all need to figure yeah, out a way this to, is like me i get out of my depth really fast on the economic <laughs> stuff, but like, 
It's hard. Yeah, though. I can yeah, see it's, like, it's wrong. I don't know how to fix it. Yeah, I have no idea. No, I don't no. think anybody knows how to fix it except yeah. for people that are like happy with the way it is. Mm-hmm. Which is like true in so many places. Yeah, those people probably yeah. are like, okay, why would I fix this problem? Like yeah. this problem is making me mo- like I had a guy. I'm not gonna mention names, but like the guy that owns the tents at the Big E. He's like, mm-hmm. dude, I hope that we have so much more COVID. <laughs> Because that means a bunch of people came. Because we're oh, cool. like, that's such a metaphor. It's like, it's not necessarily that it's, he doesn't want people to get sick. And he was very yeah. clear. Like he was like, even just joking to me, he was like, I don't want anybody to get sick. I don't want anybody to die. But COVID being around means I sell 500% more tents, yeah. right? Because everybody needs them for schools. Everybody now needs them for, you know, outside events. Yeah. Everybody needs it for their ski shop that they didn't need a tent for. He's now setting up like permanent, like MSA, Mount Snow Academy has... A, like, a tent. gigantic yeah. tent across from Marshall, like just so they can train in outside during the winter. It's like, yeah. it's, it is. It's, it's, I talked to somebody too about like climate change and skiing, and they were like, yeah, some places are going to do better. Totally. Like a, like a mammoth or a breck or somewhere that's like up high and has yeah. enough money to make snowmaking. Like when the little places die, those guys will do better. And that's such a like fatalistic way of looking mm. at it. We're hitting on a lot of hot topics right now. Wow, yeah, we just but, but, climate still, change. Anyway. but still read the book. There's more in there. Yeah. It's yeah. I mean, climate change is a real worry, right? Yeah, like it's like absolutely. that's it's amazing to me that it is still a question for people that if that's a like it's a problem. The industry should be doing way more. Yeah, especially the ski resorts. Like you, Vale again. Like I'm gonna shit on them until they figure it out and like start actually doing things and giving back, right? Because that was their whole. A couple years ago, I remember them saying something about like, oh, here, we're doing this. We can do more. We can build better things for the community. And now I'm just like, I knew that was marketing then, but now I feel like it's marketing and I feel dirty about it. Like, I feel like I feel dirty talking to anyone there. I feel like, do you want to help or do you want to make more money? And I feel like the the climate thing in every capacity, it's like, how do you not see how this could like jacking around now makes everything worse, like for your bottom line in the long term, like. It's short-sightedness. Is yeah, this is. is like, I'm going to get real ranty. <laughs> I told you, this is what people like. This is, I think, what people like. I have no yeah. idea what people like. It's like, you look at the numbers afterwards, and you're like, okay, I thought that was going to do good. I thought that was going to do bad. But I think people like ranty. So yeah. um, if there's something you want people to take away from the book, what is it? Ooh. I don't know. I just want it, like, I think we were talking about, like, what makes a good story earlier. And it's like, I want it to be sort of like, to be something that people can like resonate with and be like, oh yeah, those are things I know about too. Like I want to, mm. hopefully it's like something that people get excited about and like want to be like, oh yeah, this is the world that I, like, this is my world, but I want it to be something that people can like talk about and that like is more than, I mean, more than just a book sounds really cheesy, <laughs> but like, I guess when I, there wasn't, it felt like this book didn't exist in the world. Mm-hmm. And like, that was something that felt interesting to me to try and be able to, like, explain that thing that felt like a big part of my life. Mm. So, like, yeah, hopefully people can kind of, like, does like second Does second reads mean more to you than first reads? Like, the, if somebody reads it twice, does oh, that mean yeah. more to you? Okay, cool. I mean, well, I guess I, I never even thought about that. Yeah, I <laughs> so rarely read books twice. Right, exactly. So and I, I do that, too, like, right? Like, I, I yeah. read it. Very rarely do I open a book twice. Like if I do it, it's because I'm like, oh, I want I want to remember this better. Yeah, again. or something. I've actually been doing that a little bit more lately, like reading books that I loved when I was a kid or like remember right. being really impactful to me. And it's interesting how they hold up on the second read. Totally. Like I read, I for like forever, I told people that Edward Abbey was like my favorite <laughs> writer. And then I went back and read him and was like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, 
I don't know. I think, yeah, I think anytime you read something a second time, you'll get something different out of it. Yeah. So. Um, I told you I was going to ask you about Audible stuff and is this going to be available on Audible as it well? Will. Yeah. Okay. Same time as when the book's released or after? It should be the same time. Okay. Yeah, that's actually something that I, I mean, publishing is, has been such a like, I'm sure. Book publishing is so different from magazines, and there's um, so many, the moving, I mean, it's not that there's more moving parts, but there are different moving parts. Also, I guess. I guess it's just like how it gets out in the world, how you okay. reach out, the sales structure, what I have to do to promote it, all the different formats it comes in. Right. So I picked a narrator, so hopefully there's somebody working on it right now. Yeah. But, okay. That's cool. Yeah. I, does it... Does it excite you still if somebody's like, I listened to your book as opposed to I read your book? Yeah, of course. Because I think it's... Is it the same? I don't know. Huh. Yeah. I so rarely listen to books. Right. That I feel like that, it just, it feels like a different experience to me. Yeah. But I think... Yeah, I don't know. I think it's like whatever... The words are the words. So I think it's like whatever way... Mm-hmm. I... I'm like struggling with this because I feel like for me, it's almost like a pacing thing. Totally. Like when I read a book, mm -hmm. I'm deciding the pace versus like when I listen to something, the other, like the, the maker is deciding. Yeah. So I feel like it is kind of a different experience. That's what I think is so important about these audible things is like if you're, I almost wish you read it. Right. And a yeah. lot of times, and I understand why you don't because it takes an ungodly amount of time to actually do that and put that. And like being a, narrator is a real skill that i do not have yeah i mean like the that pacing and the breathing and all that but it's hard right because like i told you i listened to Downriver on audio and it's you're not getting the story the same way as if you read it right yeah. it doesn't sound like your words like reading this like reading powder days versus reading that or listening to that it's a different experience totally different experience yeah. and it's almost like i want to go buy the book and read the book on my own now to see hmm. like how it directly Paris. what the experience yeah that's interesting i don't that's something i don't think about a lot but it is yeah but it's such a big part of how people engage with content Con yeah. now is audio is it's very limited to how they do visual yeah so i think like you were talking about earlier like what like if somebody was getting into it now how would what how would you have them think about it and i think because of who i am because the time that i got into it I'm, i've always been so word focused like i'm not that good at audio i'm not i've had like i'm not good at video I don't take good photos. Like that's like the medium that I know how to do it, but there's so many other channels now. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I, th I still think like a book. I mean, obviously this is like what I do, but like a book still feels special to me. Yeah. And like, even like, I still like just like going into bookstores and touching the books. <laughs> One of the last things I have for you is I, I want to know how you, you mentioned a little while ago about, putting something out there that you really like that you would want to read that's a weird thing like i have a hard time with that mm -hmm. because i find like the things that i'm really interested in people aren't necessarily interested mm -hmm. in like in terms of stories and the connectivity and the so how much are you writing for yourself and how much are you writing for the reader i guess that's yeah, i think i'm curious about with writing because it's like you're aware like right now I'm aware somebody's going to listen to this, but I don't think about it when I'm doing, I'm just yeah. talking kind of, is it a similar experience when you're writing or is it like you're, you're very clear, like this is, I'm, I'm trying to get this across to the reader. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, it's a tricky question. Cause I think it's kind of both. And I think 
having to figure out that, like, if I were just writing it for myself, it would be different. Okay. Like, me writing in my little, like, journal or whatever is, is obviously different, very for sure. different than yeah. that. But I think that if you get too worried about, like, how are people going to respond to it, then it gets sticky and fake. And I think, like, what, yeah, like, when I think about, like, what I like to read, a lot of it is that kind of, like, first person narrator. It feels authentic to that person's voice. So I think that, yeah, like that's one of the, that's one of the things that you have to think about in writing is like, okay, what's the, how do I hit that middle yeah. ground between being like, not just like insidery and selfish and like me, 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 right. but also like giving people a human yeah, and like making it real. Does the, yeah, the insidery is like, yeah. how do you balance the amount that you give somebody, right? Because so much of inside information is like you have it because of the experiences that you have and that's how you got that insider yeah. information in a lot of cases. So I, I just wonder like how you determine what is real. What's interesting. Or what's well, yeah, what's yeah. interesting to somebody else with limited experiences, yeah. right? Because if you're in the industry for a long time, you have a lot of experiences and that's how a lot of these inside things, you know, the, the know-hows, the do this thing because it's cool, the whatever, that's how they come about in a lot of ways. Yeah. And like, I don't think that like, I'm that interesting, maybe. Like, <laughs> You're also very self-deprecating. Like, like so, said that yeah, a few sorry, times. From Massachusetts. Th- <laughs> yeah, same. Yeah. I, I understand. Um, but I think part of it is like, in thinking about a writer, like one of the things, being a writer, one of the things I think about is like, how am I like the lens for other people? Okay. Not like how much it is of it is like my story, even though I'm like, got it, the first person. So yeah, I think it is. Like I think I am thinking about readers all the time, but I think sometimes I also forget that people are going to read it. If that makes any sense? No, totally. Like when somebody's like, oh yeah, I read that. I'm like, oh, oh yeah. Like <laughs> that's out there in the world. <laughs> Do you forget you said things? Yeah. Or like, just that I like, that. oh yeah, when it goes on the internet, anybody can look at it. Totally. <laughs> totally. So yeah. yeah, I don't know. I mean, when you like, do you feel like you have like podcast voice versus like you at home voice? Um, I think if I'm interested in something, I talk the same way. Yeah. Um, if I'm like, it, sure, am I more lazy with my words when I'm like just hanging out? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Like I'm, I'm trash most of the time. Like I'm like not. Th- but if I'm being thoughtful about something, whether it's on the mic or off the mic, I'm, yeah. I'm the same way. I'm the same person. It's not, it's not any different for me. But I never think about anymore. Like probably the first fifty episodes I did, mm-hmm. I was like, I thought about everything and everything, like the way everything was going to be perceived, and now. I just don't care anymore. Like, it's like, there's enough out there that if somebody wanted to bury me for something I said, I'm sure it's out yeah. there. I'm sure I'm gonna, I've said not something. Gonna be president. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm not worried about it. Go through it. It's too hard to do anyway, right? People say way dumber things on a regular basis. Yeah. So I just like, I don't know. I, I don't worry about it as much as I used to. And I think that's a very freeing feeling. Like, it's bit. probably been the last, I don't know, 75 to 100 episodes where I'm like, every episode I feel a little more comfortable just saying how I feel. And with writing, I feel like... It just would take me so much longer yeah. to get there. Like it would take so much longer to be like comfortable telling a story in a way that felt authentic to myself. So I guess I give you a lot of credit for that because it sounds real. Like you read this book and you're like, this this is relatable. It's real. It's it's something I can really feel connected to. Yeah. And like I work really hard at that. Like that's my job. Yeah. And I think that's also part of like writing so interesting. Like I've been doing a little bit of teaching and writing so interesting because it's like a craft and an art like yeah. there's like ways like the right way to do it but also so much of it is like voice and tone and how relaxed you are and I think that that 
that takes a lot of time to like figure that out and a lot of like doing shitty stuff and a lot of writing stuff that you don't really like to like even have a sense of what you think your voice is. Yeah. How is how do you stay consistent? My one of the hardest things about writing a book to me seems like the consistency of your feelings mm. and the consistency yeah. of that tone seems mind blowing to me. And I mean, like people that have listened to the show for a while can tell you, like sometimes I'm completely erratic. I'm not there. I'm not focused. I'm not. Sometimes I'm the complete opposite. Sometimes I'm really happy to be there. Sometimes like maybe I'm a little stoned. Like I'm just not. I'm just not. I'm not focused as yeah. much as I should be. I can't imagine putting that in writing and be like, how do I get myself into the same state that I wrote this first paragraph in, right? Yeah. That's also editing. I guess. Like, you get to, like, go back and... I, yeah. Yeah. I think, like, a lot of the way that I write is that I will just, like, vomit out words, handwritten, and then I'll type it up, and then I'll okay. go back through it. So, like, it takes... Like, that didn't... That took... Like, the book took a long time to happen. Like, how long did it take? <laughs> I started working on it... I did, like, a lot of the... I did, like, a big kind of road trip that was most of the right. kind of backbone of it in 2019. Okay. So I think I started working on it in 2018. Yeah, because it would have been, like, it was, like, my birthday 2019 that I was on the road. And then I had a draft of it. What is this? We're in 2021? Yeah. So I think I had a draft, like, end of 2020? Is that right? Anyway, however many years that is. It's been a yeah, it's yeah, been a and minute. there was like a year, New Year's this year. I was like working on kind of final edits, and I was like down to the deadline. I was like on New Year's, I'm gonna like we're gonna go skiing. I'm gonna like be done with the draft. My boyfriend was like, "Weren't you doing this exact same thing New Year's last year? Like finishing the draft?" I'm just like shut up. So yeah, so I think like it is, and it's like you do a book is different than like a magazine story or something like that because it's like it is so big and like it takes yeah. so much more I mean time. this is not like, a short book yeah I mean it's not like the you know it's not a Harry Potter book but it's yeah. like it's very it's <laughs> it's, it's a long it's a full read yeah and so it like takes a long time to go back through that but it yeah it doesn't just like it doesn't just like come out of my pen like that <laughs> no for sure yeah. <laughs> I, I understand that 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 is definitely and like I'm a pretty sloppy first draft person like it takes you know how are you on final like you like it's probably still pretty sloppy. <laughs> okay, yeah, because some people are like, this has to be like exactly the way I want it to. T- yeah. I'm sure it is to a point still. Like, yeah, I'm there's sure a it's point a great where you have product, to let it go. But... And that's actually that's another like freelancing nuts and bolts thing that like when I was first started freelancing, I like called up everyone I knew and was like, how do you do this thing? Mm. And one guy was like, I just turn in clean drafts, and so people call me back. Mm. And so it's like, yeah, there's a point where it's like it has to. That's part of the work. Like, it has to be dialed. Um, My last question for you is, how do you feel about how the book came out? Like, we're almost... I mean, when this comes out, uh, my plan is to release this episode the same week that the book drops. Yeah. How do you feel about the book? What makes someone go buy it? Why should someone go buy it? Give me, like, this is is the elevator pitch, right? Like, this is, like, how do you feel about the product that you put out into the world? I mean, I think it's really cool. I do too. Like, yeah. like obviously I can, it's hard because I can look at it and see all the flaws and all the points where I like screwed up or it doesn't feel right. I'm not doing a good job on the elevator pitch right now. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, I don't think that's true though. Yeah, I, I really I'm like really, yeah. It's hard when it's like something that came out of your body, but I'm like <laughs> really, my brain. Um, <laughs> I'm really excited to like see what people think of it. 
And I hope it does, like, I do hope it's, like, something that doesn't exist already and that, like, it scratches an itch for people. Yeah. I think it will. Like, I mean, just Yeah, I think that, like, if you care about skiing and, like, that's, you are obsessed with it, hopefully that, like, there's something about that in the book that, like, feels true. Yeah. Yeah, and there's been a lot of people I've seen, I'm sure you've seen much more than I've seen because I'm just looking on, like, Twitter and Instagram and, like, whatever, but people have been so nice about how the book came like they've been so outwardly like this is amazing this yeah, is a great really product good. yeah that's got to be a great thing because i too. think yeah if you're like a weird self-deprecating person who spends too much time in front of your and computer you're like this you're is like, validation what's it gonna be like in the world it's hard like and when we're talking right now it's like reviews are just starting to come in so mm. it's right at that point where it's like i don't know what people are gonna think about it but so yeah. far it's been really good which feels it's been positive which feels really really good that's awesome yeah. That's awesome. And it feels like the people who like get it are appreciating it, and that feels the most good. Yeah, that's got to be one of the most exciting things. It's like yeah. people that you respect that are yeah. like, "This is dope." That, that's the best thing. Is like yeah. when you get that text from someone that you also work like that's in the same kind of circles, and they're like, "This yeah. is dope." Like Mike Douglas told me that it was good. That's like, so insane. Hey, <laughs> the literal guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. so yeah, don't take my word for it. Take take his word for it yeah that should be like on the co- mike douglas said that's, book yeah. was cool but that's one of those things where it's like if you're like a yo-yo in new york who skis four days a year do you know who dude mike everybody douglas knows who mike okay. douglas is yeah. i feel like if you don't know who mike douglas is like, like this book might not be for you get it yeah right like this that's the i don't know i don't know though but like maybe it's for everybody but yeah. realistically do your research and you should know who mike yeah. douglas is it's the shit so um where where is this going to be available? Let's talk like where people yeah. actually can buy this thing when it I drops. I think what you should do is go to your local bookstore. Awesome. And support local that. businesses. And it's um, bookshop.org is a is sort of like the indie bookstore Amazon. So okay. they'll have everything. You'll be able to get it online. Go, okay. to, go to bookshop.org instead of amazon.com. Perfect. Yeah. I and think. like, yeah, like, I don't know. I think a lot about in putting a book out in the world, I'm thinking a lot about like, the world of books and I think like if people don't support cool local bookstores like those things aren't going to exist yeah so like if you're into that go to that place don't get the like it's already like discounted on Amazon which I don't understand wait wait yours is yeah how like it doesn't exist yet why is it cheaper there already do you control that or is it the publishing company yeah it's a publishing company and some it's like some you know like whatever margins Amazon has Amazon deal so like they're ruining Amazon is ruining everything before it even exists yeah that's how Amazon does things though yeah. So, so, so yeah it's like i say it's like yeah like you want somebody to be able to boot your like fit your boots like buy your boots boots with a local ski shop yeah that's it's like the same thing it's the easiest thing to do like you just start by doing that one thing and the rest of the experience makes sense yeah right so but not everybody's so lucky to have decent boot fitting and all this totally stuff, yeah, all yeah, this yeah. Good stuff. <laughs> like you know whatever so we can go down the inequality wormhole again um awesome but yeah november 9th where can people find you on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, website? Uh, the website is heatherhanswin.com, and I'm going to be doing a couple events, so I'll try and post up there. And cool. then it's H. Hanswin on the social medias. Perfect. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Mid-rolls. We have mid-roll reads now. Um, and this one is for our friends at Pearl Wax. Uh, Pearl Wax is a wax company, if you can figure that out. Um, they are my favorite Jill and that whole crew over there have been amazing to work with, um, for the past couple seasons. And we have another deal for you guys and it is 20% off on your first order at pearlwax.com. All you got to do is use promo code out of bounds, all caps, 
and save 20% off on your first purchase. Um, they've got a whole new line of waxes, including the Pro Line Wax uh, and some skin waxes that are available also. Um, so please, please, please go to ProWax.com, use promo code OUT OF BOUNDS in all caps, and save yourself 20% on some new wax. Thanks. Bye. All right, Brody, we're going to just fucking run this thing. Um, yeah. Tell people first who you are, um, a little bit about yourself, and then we'll go from there. Uh, awesome. Brody Levin. I live in Salt Lake City, Utah, because I'm a skier, and that's like an inevitable phase that you go through. It's somehow lasted 15 years for me, though. Um, originally from uh, Chesterland, Ohio, which is northeastern Ohio in the snow belt, less of an inevitable phase for a skier to go through. Um, and I didn't ski west of Ohio until I was 19 and moved to Utah for university, actually. Um, now, yeah, small business owner here. I mean, my business is Brody Levin Incorporated. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I'm making my living here, living on a little organic farm with my girlfriend and our dog named Spaghetti. Cool. Um yeah, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was the fact that you like started as a park skier and now you're like the complete opposite of a park skier. Um, what what is that like? Why why the transition? What's what is the interest, I guess, um, in skiing these days? I mean, I think I like park skiing still seems to be like internally my identity. Like I still think park skiing is so cool. I would still much rather wear baggy clothes. Like I just think park skiing is so cool. Yeah. And I, I mean, that was, so growing up in Ohio, we didn't even have a park. And then we had a kind of a half pipe sort of thing. It was like a very low angle half pipe thing that they made out of dirt. And it was only open for snowboarders. Then I was really interested in park skiing though, because like, what else are you interested in? You subscribe to freeze you yeah. get the magazine new schoolers finally exists you get on there and you're like oh park skiing is what skiing is if you don't live in ohio um and then so yeah i went to a, a ski academy in vermont for my final two years of high school to see if like the little jumps so like back in my home ski hill in ohio i would build jumps by hand and you have to build them quickly so the ski hill is only like 210 vertical feet it's a but it's a, over a thousand feet long it's like a quarter mile long so it's like almost completely flat and like the top 75 of those 210 vertical feet are stacked up cars that they covered in snow, like whatever. And um, so we used to build jumps by hand, but then there was like the quote unquote snowmobile guys. I don't know. They were like mountain ops, I guess. There was like two of them and they would just ride like a trail sled around the mountain. If they would see a jump, they would just ride over the jump and destroy it because you're not allowed to have jumps. Um, and so, you know, you hurry up, build the jump by hand, hit it a couple of times until it they ride over it. And then you, you know, you take a lap on the chairlift, you come back and, or while you're sitting on the 45 minute long chairlift ride, you just watch them ride over it five times. And you're like, Oh, there goes my jump. And so I was getting really into park skiing and my, my parents knew of a water ramp. Cause I was, I grew up a soccer player. My dad was a soccer coach, blah, blah, blah. My parents knew of a water ramp through the soccer world in Ohio. That was in my hometown that two Olympians had come from two uh, aerialist skiers. Um, Mariano Ferrario and Brian Curran were both in the Olympics, both grew up training on this hand-built water ramp that went into a pond in this guy, Bill Harris's backyard. Um, and so I somehow got on that program with my friend Cody and Cody and Brody would go there once a week and we would like hit this water ramp. But because I wanted to, I was like at the point that, you know, because 
you hit a point where you want to go upside down on skis if you're like, you know, 10 right. years old and having fun doing 360s and helicopters or whatever. And they're like, if you're going to go upside down on skis, you're going to learn to do it the right way. And then all of a sudden I'm doing these like perfectly laid out gymnastic style <laughs> backflips into a water ramp. And I'm like, oh, this is how you go upside down. And so, and then I would start spending the summers at the Olympic Training Center in Lake Placid, New York. And, um, and you know, my parents didn't have money to send me all this stuff. So I like start this business so I could pay to do all these camps and stuff. And then I realized like that and park skiing are two very different things, actually. Like one is gymnastics on skis and one of them is park skiing. Um, and so one of them is like, you know, skateboarding on skis or whatever. And so I decided I could either stick to park skiing and probably never make it anywhere because I wasn't that good because I grew up in Ohio or stick with aerials and pretty much anyone that sticks with it, like wins the Olympics. <laughs> and, so, and so I'm like, man, I'd probably rather park ski than do aerials forever. Um, so I quit aerials, kept park skiing. I would like go to little contests in New York or Pennsylvania, but I didn't grow up in a family of skiers. So my parents would like drive me three hours, sit in the lodge from bell to bell and Holy then like drive shit. me home because they just wanted me to like get involved or they, they were supportive of me skiing. You know, they couldn't support me like financially to do it, but they were like, Hey, if you want to ski, like go skiing all day, that's cool. Um, but my dad has this funny story where, so we lived five minutes from my 200 foot ski hill called Alpine Valley. And growing up, he would only turn left out of our driveway because if he turned right, we would pass the ski hill and he didn't want me to know skiing existed because we couldn't afford it. <laughs> And then, so my sister finds out about this after school program. My parents are like, "Ugh!" she signs up for it. Younger brother definitely wants to sign up for it because she does. And then all of a sudden we're doing like this, you know, once a week after school ski thing. Um, I'm kind of bouncing all over the place, but whatever. Okay. I ended up a ski academy um, for freestyle skiing. And then I moved to Utah for university specifically for park skiing because Park City is here. Right. Um, and within like two years of being here, maybe one year of being here, I was, uh, I was starting to like do some backcountry touring to access like the tip, you know, pyramid gap and all the big backcountry jumps. So I could, you know, take my park skiing to the backcountry Cause like Eric Pollard did it. So I have to do it. Um, and, and, uh, and pretty quickly I started realizing that I appreciated ski touring without the jump at the end of the road. Um, and so then I was just ski touring as an end in itself, not as a means to an end. Um, mm. and now I pretty much don't ski downhill. I just go uphill all day. <laughs> that's so, I feel like for a lot of people, that's so bizarre. The idea of skiing and skiing mostly for like just the experience of going uphill and not really caring about the downhill. Yeah. That's like, and now it's a little more normal, right? We're starting to get to this point where uphill and touring and doing schemo stuff is, is kind of becoming, at least in New England, it's becoming a little more normal. Um, thanks to people like Andrew Drummond at Ski the Whites and like that crew, like you're starting to see it happen a little more. But I remember looking at that shit a few years ago and being like, why would you want to skip the best part of ski? Like the down is the best part and people are skiing on stuff. Like Fisher a few years ago made these skis and they still make them. And it says not intended for downhill use. And you're like, why would you ever want this? Yeah, dude, the Vert Alp, I, I have that ski. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that specific ski from Fisher is for a specific um, uh, like sport that they have in the Alps, which is like, it's a schema. What's it like? What's a part of a sport called? Like a discipline. Yeah. And it's like a discipline where you only go up and then you like take the chairlift down. And those skis are underweight for it what is legally allowed, I think is the minimum weight for a traditional ski, most ski. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't do that 
And I still like right. hoot holler on the way down. The joke is that I don't like powder skiing. I love powder skiing. <laughs> I mean, my first day powder skiing was here in Utah at Brighton. I was like a freshman in college and I was wearing like a tall tee, you know, probably like three tall tees. Yeah. And I like had no idea how to do it. And, um, you know, I just kept losing my skis and the pow and like, it, it sucked. It like ruined my day. Ever, like I had, you know, grown up so hyped up to experience pow skiing. I had never, ever skied in fresh snow. And I just hated it because I like couldn't figure it out. And I mean, 15 years later, I'm still trying to figure it out. Um, mm. But I mean, of course, I still love the skiing. But like the whole like typical like sentiments about skiing, like the snow under your skis and the wind through your hair and like the trees glistening, like those things don't just resonate with me as much. It's like very much an endurance activity, an exercise, um, a way of getting outside. It's not like this gravity defying thrill seeking endure or adrenaline sport that it once was for me and i think a lot of people fall in love with the sport because of yeah does the challenging aspect of it is that does that excite you like going and doing a new whatever it is like you're trying to bag a peak right like you're trying to like get to the top of something you're trying to like conquer this next and i hate that like that conquer this next expedition or this next mountain but I feel like for a lot of people that motivates them to go, right. It, it motivates them to explore more in so many different ways in the mountains. Like, does that motivate you at all? Like how hard it is, like the difficulty of doing these things. Does that, does that kind of thing excite you? Yes. I think the challenge has shifted before the challenge was like, like trying, learning new tricks. And then the challenge was like learning new tricks in the backcountry without tearing my ACL and now the challenge is really, um, or then the challenge became like steep skiing and pretty much like how terrible of conditions can I ski? And when, and, and during that time, the shift really went from like fear of blowing my knee to like fear. If you fall, you die. Um, it's no longer like you're going to twist your ankle. It's like, Oh, if you fall, you're like going to go into a hole at the bottom of the mountain and never come out. Um, yeah. and that, that challenge is still there for me. I still love steep skiing. That's still like totally my thing. And that's what I do, but it's also shifted into like the challenge of trip planning, logistics, uh, traveling, finding a good, finding appropriate partners to do these things with who have the same risk tolerance as I do. And the challenge as I, you know, I just turned 34 last week and the challenge has, has morphed a little bit now into, um, introducing other folks to the sport, um, sharing my skill set and my experiences, teaching workshops, volunteer to teach avalanche clinics, those kind of things. Um, because at this point, like, even though I didn't move to the mountains until I was, you know, older than a lot of folks who have experienced skiing in the big mountains. Um, I, I kind of drank from the fire hose and learned a lot about big mountains um, over no longer a short period of time. I mean, it's been 15 years of, you know, experience in the bigger mountains and um, probably 13 or 14. I mean, 2008 is my first time going to, you know, 19,000 feet. And I've been doing that ever since. And um, yeah. it's, it's kind of accumulated now. And I'm happy to share that knowledge with others. Yeah. That's gotta be a really rewarding part of the whole process. I think so. Yeah. And especially introducing, you know, folks who wouldn't traditionally be introduced to skiing, um, to the sport, because I, I was one of those people, like I wouldn't have found skiing. I come from a family of non-skiers and I grew up in the Midwest. Like it's pretty hard to find skiing, you know, let alone folks who, um, come from different levels of privilege or different backgrounds where they wouldn't be able to be exposed to the sport at all. Um, and I still know there's crazy high barriers to entry, but you know, I, I do what's, what's feasible for me to help introduce folks to it. Yeah. So this has been one of the topics that I think I've, I've been pushing really hard this fall. And a lot of people have been pushing really hard is the kind of like making skiing more accessible, right? So how does spaghetti? 
dude, hanging out. Leave it upside down. <laughs> um, but making skiing more accessible for people, right? Like making it more than just like, you have a lot of money, you go skiing. Like skiing shouldn't be golf. Like that kind of notion is kind of getting pushed a little harder. It feels like this fall in particular because of how many new skier visits there were at resorts last year and how many new skiers in general there were. How do you see that going in the future, I guess? Because to me, it seems like we're on a downward trajectory, especially with like the release of things like uh, First Tracks or whatever it's called. Um, and like all these programs where they're kind of incentivizing people to spend more, like you have more money, we'll definitely take more of your money and we will give you more for it, you know? Your money is good here, as it turns yeah. out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it. I, I'm in an interesting position for me because I... I, I found myself saying this more and more recently, but I haven't skied at a ski resort for like almost a decade now. I just, all of the skiing I do is human powered. I earn every turn that I make. And that's not for some, you know, carbon footprint reason or for some anti-ski resort reason. It's just the type of skiing that I have found that I enjoy during like this phase in my life. Um, I'm just not riding chairlifts. And I think one thing that really pushed me away from the ski resorts was the very like consumptive nature of skiing. Like it, it's, it's like extractive in so many ways, these people from wherever come to these ski towns where real people live and try to make a real living and, and raise and have a livelihood. And they just extract, they take, they take, they take, they take, they take, they leave. And they're not necessarily like adding anything to the town besides maybe an influx of money. But I think towns to be like thriving areas need more than an influx of money, including ski towns. Um, and so like this extractive nature of it was just kind of like kind of just disgusting to me and not something you know a, a 20 dollar hamburger and 30 dollar hot chocolate like wasn't really like giving me my kicks yeah. anymore um and i was okay removing myself from that at the same time of course people that's how 99.9 percent .9 of skiers interact with the sport that is what keeps me going as a professional skier is people doing that of course i acknowledge that i respect it i'm all for ski resorts i think they're awesome it's the only way i can <laughs> no doubt um everyone go to ski resort go skiing that's cool um but i think if people could interact with the community around it both the ski resort and like the ski community in general um in a way that's that's less extractive that would be great but at the same time it's like people's vacation you can't blame them for just showing up they don't want to like you know put a piece in the art gallery they just like want to go on vacation and go skiing and buy the 20 dollars hamburger and then get out of there um mm -hmm. so I, I think it is an interesting position to be in but um it's one that I have found myself just advocating, just like, just in general, I advocate for people to get outside. And I think skiing is, is no different people. If they have the opportunity or they can make the opportunity for themselves to go skiing, I think they should. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the, the kind of push towards uphill skiing in the last few years where it's kind of becoming a little more norm is opening a lot of doors for people because a secondhand touring package or like buying a touring package in general is expensive, but it's like buying a new mountain bike where you kind of have already bought the thing you need to do the activity and the place you go do the activity exists. It's free, right? You go and you hang out and you go skiing and you have fun or you go ride your mountain bike, right? You're not going every time I go and ride like the local single track, I don't pay. Like it's not, it's not part of it. And I think skiing kind of has an opportunity to do a little more of that. It's just, how is that going to be? We need that consumption, like that consumption, like the part where everybody's going to spend money so that you and I and everybody else in this category can get paid still needs to happen. And it's just a weird balance where skiing 
like we need to go to the resorts, but the resorts suck and they're packed and they're full and everything's expensive and it's a totally I mean, different. Does, does it suck or is it just like us being in, in, in that world? We think like, no, oh, dude, I think it does. The, pro- the past product is way worse than it had like to me. And again, I don't know for the average consumer, maybe it looks like it's way better, right? Because you can buy an Epic pass at a discounted rate and you can go see 40 resorts or whatever the fuck. And it works really well for some people. But the problem is what you led with is you're going into these ski, ski towns and you treat them like they are solely ski towns and not actual towns. And I think that becomes a problem long-term for the people that live there because there's not going to be staff. There's not going to be people to work those places that you actually need for that whole mechanism to work. And it's just, it's a very bizarre situation in skiing. It's, it's a great point. And I don't know if I'm the best to speak to it. I mean, the part where you said, you know, you can get into backcountry skiing now it's like, yes, that's becoming norm, more normalized. Like if you have $12,000 in an all wheel drive car and time to get <laughs> off work to go skiing before or during the day or after work um, and the money and the time and the experience to get the avalanche education and a good partner who also has all these things, yeah. you can get into backcountry skiing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but and, dude, so the thing is, is a lot of these resorts are making that accessible, right? They're making up like, for example, my local hill here is 50 bucks for the year for an uphill pass totally safe, groomed, prepared, ready to go. Like roads are salted, everything's plowed. We're ready to go. And it costs basically that $50 a year. And like, and people are up in arms about just paying that $50 a year, right? They think it should just be free, free. And I don't, I don't have a problem with charging a small fee basically to just make sure that you're acknowledging your risks and stuff like that. But it's, I don't know. I kind of struggle with the ease of use thing, right? Like it's backcountry is more complicated than just grabbing the shit and going, but how many people are actually accessing very dangerous terrain as their first few times going, right? Once they're hooked. Uphill skiing at the ski resort and backcountry skiing are just two different sports period. And if we can make that clear to folks, that's awesome. (laughs) People think just because they go up the ski resort, they can go backcountry skiing. Um, I think that's, uh, a lost opportunity. And that, and I think that burden falls on a lot of folks like you and I to share that information that these are two different things because the barriers to entry to uphill skiing at the resort are much lower. I'm yeah. not saying there's zero, but like, yeah, instead of having a $10,000 outfit, you have like a $3,000 yeah. outfit <laughs> in an all-wheel drive car and time before, during, or after work, you know? It is uh, still complex for sure. Yeah. But I mean, I, I, I love that. And um, I think the same way. So here in, in the Wasatch, especially as it's gotten more crowded, um, we've seen folks, you know, go from skiing the easiest stuff with snowshoes to doing the easy ski tours to getting deeper into the backcountry and then getting like as far deep as you can possibly go in the Wasatch. Um, that progression, you know, we see that everywhere. And if we start seeing that with uphill skiers, they think they can go up the ski resort, then they can go out of the gate, then they can go in the backcountry that's dangerous unless they're getting education as they make that progression as well. And again, like that's, that's incumbent on all of us to make sure that education is available. Um, but if they're like, Oh, that's another barrier to entry. I'm unwilling to take, uh, or to overcome that's, that's a tough position to be in. And I mean, there's, there's a lot of like personal autonomy that needs to, um, that needs to be acknowledged in this sport. Like it's, I don't think it's everyone's responsibility to keep you safe in the backcountry, but in the beginning, I, like all backcountry skiers, pretty much didn't know what I didn't know. Like my first ski tour was like a college buddy putting a beacon on my chest, being like, here, turn this thing on. Now you're safe. And I mean, I was in the honors college and I still <laughs> thought that was 
totally legit. You know, I'm like, cool, this thing must turn me into an angel. You know, like I, yeah. I have no idea, but I, um, the, the fact that I saw it that way as someone who was logical and very curious about this sport, and I still didn't know what I didn't know, I think is indicative of probably what so many folks feel. Yeah, it's it's very complex. And I think there's a lot, the barrier to entry in a lot of ways is more so knowledge than it is money, right? Because everybody can find that stuff, that gear, like at their local swaps, they can, and again, I'm, I'm generalizing, like maybe some people can't, it's hard, some areas, whatever, whatever, but it's the knowledge is very important, I think, to have when we're getting into that, in that subject. But um, I kind of want to shift gears a little bit here. I wanted to compliment you first on your website and your ability to be a business as a professional skier. We were kind of talking about this beforehand and I just, I kind of wanted to talk about that part because I think it's very interesting to see how you handle yourself and how detail oriented your website is and how you like present the types of, like you have everything up until last week that you've been featured in basically on your website. And it's impressive. And I think that makes you a more marketable skier. And I think that's part of you treating yourself like a business, right? Uh, thank you. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Like I, I put a, a lot, I do more than just go skiing every day. <laughs> like it turns out um, I ski a lot less once it's become my job because I'm doing so much of that kind of back end work. Um, I, I think it's, you're in a cool position because like you see how other people run their businesses as professional athletes and the team managers, same thing. Like they see how other people do it. The, I don't know if it's like this in other industries, but it's like this weird hush hush thing among pro skiers. Like, how do we handle this? Like, how much money do you get paid? How do you have an agent? Why don't you have a website? Why do you have a website? Like all these like pretty basic things just like aren't really discussed. And I think it's because um, sponsorship is viewed as such a commodity mm-hmm. that it's, it's a limited thing that there is only so much to go around. And no matter how good of a job you do, there's not going to be more money poured into a marketing budget to bring you on. Um, and so if that marketing budget's already tapped out with this many skiers, it doesn't matter who you are, or what you're doing, they're not going to, they're not going to be interested in you. And that's, that's specifically if you're looking at your income as um, working with brands, like through a kind of traditional sponsorship model. Um, I, I've tried to diversify and look much beyond that for sure, because uh, I think for a number of reasons, A, I, I think it's an outdated model in many ways. Um, B, I'm, I think those models favor the very best athletes, not the best business oriented athletes or the best spokespeople or the best ambassadors. Um, and so in that way, I try to definitely diversify kind of my offering to the companies that I work with and also try not to only be reliant on companies that I'm working with, but instead, um, have other, you know, streams of revenue or, or whatever it is, all of which are related to my skiing. And that is like the, that is like the hub of the wheel, but I think sponsorships are only one spoke coming from that. Um, and the website, for example, I don't think I would need a website if all I did was have sponsors. And I went through a phase of my life where all I did was have sponsors. I was like a pro skier through and through sponsors paid hundred percent of my bills. Um, and now I just, if, if nothing else, I just, um, want to try other things and do other things. You know, I'm like a college educated skier. Like I want to do something other than just like ask people for money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. In a lot of ways that is what sponsorship is. It's like, you're like, get, I'm good. Give me money. <laughs> And that, that has never really flown for me. It probably does for some people. Um, but that is not, 
that's not my cup of tea. And um, I mean, maybe if it worked for me, it'd be pretty nice, but it doesn't. And, and that's not how I'm going about my business. Yeah. And I don't think it's not a slight to anybody else in any way, but I think you can offer so much more if you do things the way that you're doing it. And one of the questions I have, and I'm kind of running into this lately myself, where it's like, do you feel like you're offering too much to brands at some point for too little, right? Because you're offering the super organized platform, you're offering a whole bunch of different ways to be a proper ambassador for a brand, but we all get paid like ski industry people, right? Like we all get paid like skiers where it's like you're one contract to one contract, one year to one year. And I almost am shifting the way that I'm looking at these partner. And again, I'm not an athlete. Like I run a podcast and like, I look at sponsors though, and we call them sponsors in the mm-hmm. same way. Uh, I'm looking at them more like a partner that I'm doing contracted work for, as opposed to somebody that is like my spot, like when somebody's sponsored by Nike, you look at them and they're a Nike athlete. I don't look at it like you being a Fisher athlete or me being a Fisher, whatever I, a Fisher professional <laughs> talker. Um, it's, I, I, I don't look at it that way. I more look at it like this is the job I was hired to do and this is the best way I can do it. So I guess the question is, is do you feel like you're offering too much for too little sometimes? Um, I, I think it depends if I'm, uh, I think that's like, there's an inherent comparison there. And I think it depends if you're comparing to the ski industry that you and I know, or like the, the greater world, because it, as it turns out, there's more than just the ski industry. Yeah, imagine. <laughs> and um, as I've like started to venture more and more into that, it's been like pretty compelling for me to see different industries, the way that they work and the people that work in them. And um, I've, I've always been just intrigued by that. And I know something I pride myself on as an athlete is like over delivering quote unquote, based on like my contract deliverables. Cause it's, it's, you know, putting what I do into words on a contract is challenging, even for like these large corporate companies that are like, there's a lot of trust here. Like you've been doing this for over a decade now, just, we kind of want you to do what you do, but for the CFO, we need to put some like deliverables on here, you know? And like in 2021, what does that look like? It looks like, you know, you tag us on social media and you give us some photos. And I'm like, yeah. not really into social media, also not a photographer, but I understand that's what you've got to put down on paper, you know? So then I try to over deliver um, and offer things that are maybe less tangible or maybe things that would, they wouldn't have expected to put down on paper or those kind of things. And always surprise these brands that I work with in a really positive way to make sure it's like a mutually beneficial relationship. Um, but this is just how I do it. And it's definitely like not a sponsor 101 because, um, you know, I'd be living in a bigger house if I knew more about that. <laughs> it's yeah. It, it's so weird to just go and be like here. I, I can't even imagine just being like, Hey, I need money because I'm good at one thing. Right. Like I, because I'm not good at one thing, I have to be like, here's the hundred things I'm going to do for you brand X so that we can make this partnership valuable to you. You know, well, Adam, that's interesting because like, I also, I, I'm not, I'm not the best skier. If, if I'm not the best skier at all, there's lots of non-professional skiers who are better than I am. And I also do more than just skiing. And I think I offer more than just skiing, but so frequently the brands, they, they don't want, cause like, I, you know, if I'm like a, a jack of all trades, but also master of one, like ski mountaineering is still my thing. Yeah. Like I still want to be one of the best ski mountaineers in the world, right. but that doesn't mean like for the other six months a year, you're not skiing. You can't like get decent at other things. I'm not just going to like sit on the beach and do whatever for six months, you know? Yeah. And so, um, but the fact that 
the, the audience, so to speak, sees me as more than just a skier. Um, I've been told by brands that's like, that's harmful to me because it like means you can't be a good skier if you can also like run a race or like make- They said that's harmful to you? Uh, professionally. Why? Yeah, right? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Like it's, what's the um, reasoning? I, I think because it's so ingrained in our industry's mind that like you can be good at one thing and- mm. You, you need to like really emphasize that one thing. And if you look at like the large outdoor brands and the people that they sponsor as athletes, you look at someone and you're like, oh, that's a whatever. He's a biker and she's a climber. Mm. And like, I would, I would like people to think, and I think I'm like, you look at me and I'm like, I'm a skier, but X, Y, Z, I also, you know, climb, bike pack, ice climb, run. But like, why, why is it not okay to be like a well-rounded human being? I don't know, like all of consumers and all of humanity, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, is that, is that so taboo to do that? Um, and so, I mean, I, I think regardless of whether or not how it affects me professionally, like I'm not going to stop running because it only helps <laughs> or right. stop doing whatever, you know? Um, I don't know if that answered your question, but it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I really, I think just your business savvy and your ability to promote yourself is one of the things that stood out for me for a long period of time. I actually, I, when I was doing some research for this, I looked at, um, it was from the powder awards. I think it was like, it's gotta be like 2010 or something like that. When you're <laughs> up there and you're holding this fucking thing with your Instagram handle, it's like a little piece of like Tom Walsh calls you up and you're like, Brody Levin, I am Brody Levin. And here's your little tag. It's just like, but even doing shit like that, I think it's hilarious. And it like speaks to the way that you're thinking, even then, as a complete person and as a complete like business, right? Yeah. I was like, you know, a nobody winning a powder magazine award <laughs> from Tom Wallish. Like, I'm going to, yeah. I'm gonna, um, yeah. I mean, like, like any business, right? Like you got to do things that catch people off guard or marketing or whatever, you know? And like, yeah. I'm thinking like that all the time. I can't believe you dug that up. That's super funny. Yeah. You too, um, man. It's uh, that stuff lives forever. We're going to be in a <laughs> tough spot in 20 years when people can just pull up whatever shit we said and we ended up being wrong. Um, it's very bizarre. Um, yeah. I all, does that make you feel weird that like, powder magazine that's gone now like magazines in general not nearly as important as they were 10 years ago like we're starting to see a significant shift in how magazines perform and how media in skiing performs as a whole right the the number one driver used to be when like the ski magazines drop in the fall and everybody gets their stoke on for the season coming now i don't know how much people actually give a fuck like, I really don't like, do people read anymore? I, I don't know that they do. Like, yeah, I sure hope so. You get online, you sure don't think they do. That's for sure. I mean, yeah. I, 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 um, I don't think it's like a generational thing. I don't think it's like a, I'm one to like, you know, rave about the old days, but that's how I was introduced to skiing was, you know, through freeze and free skier and eventually powder. And, um, that's what I had to look up to, right? Like these people were like the athletes and the, everything I saw was like, that's what, whether I wanted to be a pro skier one day, or I just wanted to like ski these places. I couldn't even imagine because they're bigger than Pennsylvania. Um, what, whatever it is like that was, that's like pretty nostalgic for me to think about. And to think that now people can get on and interact with their favorite athletes and their favorite ski resorts online. I think that's cool. Um, but I wish it wasn't like a, an and or situation. I wish you could kind of have both. All right. 
Is that what I meant to say? Yeah. Like I wish you could have both, you know, and it's yeah. unfortunate like to see the magazines disappearing. Like, like, you know, I've been on three powder covers. Those are like highlights of my life in like 10 years. Are people going to be like, what's a powder cover? Yeah. Why does that matter? Yeah. It's, yeah but matter? No, I don't think that's true. I think that's going to matter forever. I think those types of things will hold for a long period of time. And maybe, I mean, digital copies of those things will be available and like maybe they'll matter then in that format i don't know but it's i think they're important man i think but dude, gonna be today I, I was i was hanging stuff up in my gear room like just posters and like uh i, I was hanging out my powder covers and one of them i didn't have a copy of and so i went online to find the issue to print it i was going to print it and frame it because i'm like oh this is like something very important to me this is like this is two hours ago yeah. and i go to the <laughs> I find the link on my website because I, I have OCD and thus I have everything I've ever been in chronicled on my website. And I very quickly found that issue of powder, clicked on it, and it was like a dead link. Yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh. Oh. All I have is this like, you know, two inch by three inch screenshot of like the powder cover that will like live in infamy until they, someone pays their server, server fee or whatever, you know? And I don't know, I can go on about that, but I just... I, I agree with you that like it's it's a sad thing to be in, but I think I hope it opens up new opportunities for the folks who are both involved with those kind of magazines, um, the folks who are still pushing them through and making them happen, mm. as well as like new, both traditional social and new media opportunities. Yeah, and I think there's so many good opportunities for. I've talked a lot about magazines lately. I feel like, and I did a few weeks ago, and I just got bombarded with text messages about like. Oh, you hurt my feelings about this thing, or this is mag like magazines are great because of this. Like we need uh -huh. this, everything's great. Like, and it's just I kind of wish they would just take a more complete approach, right? Because every ski magazine's website feels the same. It just feels like new ways to sell ads. It doesn't feel like a destination, except for new schoolers that still kind of holds on to that, like the forum section, the post what you want for content section. They still have all that. Oh yeah, totally. You can go on there and you can like argue with a seven-year-old for six hours if you want to right this second. And it's, uh, that's what people do. And, but I think that part of it's really cool. That's what makes New Schoolers Authentic. I still go on it all the time to just like see what's going on. I was like the 60th member of New Schoolers or something that's like so that. That's so <laughs> I wonder how many they have now. So many. Uh, and yeah, it's, uh, it's actually one of the few things like when I'm promoting a podcast, that's one of the few things that I do is post the episode to new schoolers that actually shows me any bump in the episode, wow. right? Even you sharing it as a professional skier will do less for me than putting it on new schoolers, which is wow. really important, I think. And it shows how well that medium and that website has been taken care of because they care about the website and they don't just care about this one piece of paper that's going to come out 10 times a year or whatever, you know? Yeah. And I think, I mean, you and I, you know, we don't work for magazines, so it's hard to say if that's just like inherent in the business model, or maybe they haven't been run well, or maybe that is what they absolutely need to do is like, like you said, new ways of selling advertisements. But I mean, I think, um, I think any industry can be viewed with like a different set of glasses, including yeah magazine the ski magazine or the professional skier industry and so i think it's very easy to say like hey in order just to draw a parallel in order to be a pro skier you need an apparel sponsor yeah you need a ski sponsor well me as a pro skier i haven't had a ski sponsor until last week for the last four years mm. and it turns out i was still a professional skier that entire time <laughs> I was still making my living as a skier and like that's because i was like willing to think mildly creatively um, to, to just turn like the, the definition and like the typical business program kind of on its head.
Yeah. What what was that experience like? I I I have to talk to you about this part of it because it's been four years since you've had a ski sponsor. You're with Fisher now, but like for that time period, I feel like I've seen you skiing on 10 different pairs of skis and maybe I'm exaggerating, but like I've seen you skiing on a bunch of different stuff and I'm just like, why isn't he going to be like with another brand? I don't understand. And I've, I've not understood this from afar. So I guess it's good to ask you this question now. Yeah, sure. And I mean, I, I wonder if like, you know, the, the general audience is, is interested in that or not. I don't know. But like, I think the, the definition of ski sponsor is maybe part of the, the colloquial definition versus like my definition is, is kind of part of the issue here. Like, have I gotten like as many free skis as I've wanted for the past four years from any company that I was talking to? Definitely. Like there were companies that supported me getting out skiing. They said, please use our skis. That's awesome. Um, but because this is how I make a living, a ski sponsor has to, um, we have to provide more for each other than that. And uh, that is what I just didn't come to like a, an agreement with any specific company since 2017, 2018, um, until last week with Fisher, which is based out of your neighbor, New Hampshire. And I'm really looking forward to the next uh, few years and beyond with them. Yeah. Yeah. They've been great to me and I've, I've got nothing but good things to say about them. And I've, I've told you this, I think, and I think it aligns well with what you do too. Like they make a lot of product that's really fucking good. And it lines up with kind of, it lines up with what you do, man. I mean, it just tends to make sense. Yeah. I mean, they were the first company, you know, as soon as I lost my previous ski sponsor in 2017, I like, they were the first company I went to and I was like, Hey, like, um, I have been eyeing your skis from afar. Of course I haven't tried them. I've been skiing on the same brand of skis for a number of years now, but I would love to, you know, give them a shot and see if maybe we can work something out. And it's not that there was any failure. It's just that um, in order to make to, to come to an agreement that like is, is mutually beneficial and something that's going to work for both of us in the long term, um, it took a few years to make that happen. And in the meantime, of course, I was talking to other brands, other brands were giving me skis. I was trying right. skis the first time in so long. Cause like, my pretty much my entire ski life, I've had a sponsor. So I've only tried a few brands of skis ever. Mm. I was sponsored by Lime Skis from like age 13 to 20. <laughs> I was sponsored because that's a park skier. And then as then like at the end of my park skiing career, as I was touring, they're like, we don't make touring stuff. And I'm like, I'm going to keep using your skis. Um, and then I was sponsored by Surface Skis. Yeah. And then for a few years, and then I was sponsored by Solomon for like four years or something like that. And and otherwise, I, I never tried a pair of Fisher skis. I never tried any of these like small right. independent ski companies because I was always under obligations to ski these other skis. And so that was a really fun opportunity opportunity for the last few years, even while I was talking to these brands, seeing if we could make something happen to try out like a bunch of different skis, which is something I hadn't done. And that was really fun. And I definitely um, am happy with where I, where I landed after a few years of conversation, a few years of trying different skis. And I think um, Fisher and I have a great thing going. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Can I, can I ask you about your past partnership too? Like, I mean, that one seemed like it ended pretty abruptly and it was like very bizarre, but like looking back on it now, I think it almost makes sense, right? Because Solomon doesn't really make the kind of product that you would want to use for what you do now anyway. Like, so I feel like that cutoff and maybe it's related, maybe it's not related, but it feels like it almost makes sense at this point, like for better or for worse, this worked out. Yeah, I, I totally agree for better or for worse. It worked out. Definitely. I mean, I have a lot of respect for um, the the folks at Solomon for wanting to reach out and use um, an athlete who was uh, 
doing, you know, human powered skiing when they were very much a downhill oriented company. And by the time I left that, you know, they had uphill oriented gear, which when I arrived on the team, they told me would never, ever happen. We are always going to be a downhill oriented company. Mm. And then all of a sudden they were making full carbon boots and 200 yeah. grand bindings. Um, and I was really happy to see that. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I wish the company the absolute best and the athletes that are there and the, and the marketing folks that are there. Like I had, I had a really good experience. Yeah. And, and, and also like we offered each other a lot of support during those years. Like I did the most traveling, the biggest trips, um, and like an endless, I mean, you know, I, I probably skied on five continents during those four years with them or whatever, and, um, and made first descents all over the world. And so the, the level of, um, opportunity we were able to offer each other was, was a really fun part of my ski career. Yeah. Um, last thing I have for you, do do you have plans for the season? Like, do you, are you, uh, obviously you're a very detail oriented person. Do you plan out your season? Yeah. Um, Do you plan out your season ahead of time? Yeah. I mean, you know, time stopped a couple of years ago, right. In the before times. And it actually stopped a year earlier for me because in 2019, I decided to take my first spring off from an expedition for like something like 12 years. I've been doing at least one giant, uh, trip that consumed all of my money and all of my time and all of my planning, all of my resources every spring, if not two or three of them. And in 2019, I was just like, man, I have fewer professional obligations right now. Like I have the opportunity. I'm not super psyched on any specific peak or line or couloir anywhere in the world. Like I can just chill. I like had, I had a house that I could like do some stuff to, you know, it was just like nice to just like do some spring skiing in the States. Um, granted, I didn't go that whole year without doing a trip because I still did my first New Zealand trip that that winter um, or, you know, whatever, like October, November, December. Um, and so I did go on a big ski trip, but it was not like an expedition. You know, I had a, a car rented that I was driving around the country. Um, and so I like finally took a year off from expedition and then bam, COVID. And like I took the next year off because it was forced. And then I took the next year off to be responsible. And all of a sudden it's been three years without like a proper giant trip, mm-hmm. you know. And so the, the, the trips that were in the back of my head for like the COVID year, like 2020 are definitely, they're kind of resurfacing now. Um, and in addition to that, I have, uh, I have one thing I'm, I'm planning right now that I was referring to before we started recording, which is, um, it's a domestic, uh, endurance challenge that will take me to back to my roots, so to speak. And okay. uh, I, I don't I mean. I guess I probably shouldn't talk about it yet. Cause I just hate talking about things till I know they're going to happen. No, I'm with you. I, I, I pitched it another year too. And it yeah. didn't happen. But Adam, I want you to be the first one that I talk to about <laughs> it as soon as I get this whole thing signed off. Cause it's going to be unlike any ski adventure I have done. And I've done some pretty weird, obscure ski adventures. Amazing. Well, I'm very excited to hear about it. I'm sure, I'm sure it's going to be great, but I am 100% with you. I, I don't want to talk about anything until it's fucking signed and yeah. getting delivered. Like I, no I mean, it's almost like a superstition, you know, it's not it like I, it I don't totally. care if everyone knows, I want everyone to know about it. I just, you know, I don't want to jinx myself. And so like, but it's cool because I kind of have in the past have divided my ski career up just in my mind, kind of like between trying to do half stuff. That's kind of like forward thinking, cutting edge, ski mountaineering, first descents, you know, on the opposite side of the planet, yada, 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 risk my life, really scary. Ooh, yeah. but no one like seems to really like, uh, that that's not as attractive to most skiers as like the kind of more like entertaining kind of 
goofy stories of like me trying really hard, not necessarily risking my life at all, um, high risk of failure, um, and slightly more relatable. You know, like I did these series of pedal to peak trip, yep. um, where I would like ride my bike with all my ski gear on it. And this is like, you know, eight, nine years ago, I was doing this. Um, and the, that stuff went over super well, even though like it was not the hardest thing in the world at all. And it's definitely not what I pride myself on as far as my skiing goes. And so it's, it's, I'm trying to kind of divide my career up into that. And so for this year, I kind of, I think have um, a big adventure on each side of those scales, if they're on opposite sides on each side of the scale that have kind of bouncing around in my mind. Okay. Sick. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, cool. Where can people find you on social? Where can people find your website? Um, the whole nine, um, feel free. Uh, yeah. Brody11.com Brody11 on all the social medias, as long as you're down with stuff that hasn't been updated in like six months. Um, <laughs> cause that's how much I care about it. Um, no, but I really like interacting with folks and uh, chatting with them about kind of their their future ski plans. You know, I have a couple of workshops available for folks, whether there's one on adventure trip planning, there's one on, you know, how to pack your backcountry ski pack. Um, and I'm always down to talk gear and experiences and uh, yeah, get out there with people. Sick. Well, thank you for your time, dude. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Adam. Appreciate it. Hope you guys enjoyed those episodes. We are back next week with Cody Townsend and Amy Angerbretson. So I hope you guys will uh, see us next Tuesday. Thanks. Bye.